Hello there, and welcome to episode three of Battle of the Pilots. I am Graham Raddings, and I am joined by my good friend and surprising cathode ray evangelist, Adrian Mills. Yeah, indeed. That's it, that's me. (laughs) In this podcast, we reach into the extensive back catalogue of TV shows from over the last 50 years and pluck out a couple of pilot episodes for a head-to-head battle. To ensure we can crown a champion, we will take a vigilant, chucklesome and erasable look at both chosen TV show pilot episodes, discussing their relative merits or demerits and scoring them out of 10. For key themes and or categories such as story, characters, costumes, music, visuals and influence to eventually settle on an overall score. In the end, one pilot show will emerge as the king of New York, hey number one, while the other one steps ungainfully on a fresh number two. (laughs) For this third episode, we have chosen two mid-70s, mostly British, cult sci-fi shows. That's right, this week, the darkly dystopian Blake Seven goes mano a mano against the brightly nihilistic Space 1999. Let battle commence. So obviously, the way these things work, you know, we've this is the third one of these we've done. If you're not used to the way this kind of works and the and the way we run the episodes at this point in time, I like to ask Adrian, the man of all summary, um, a summary man, <laughs> one might say, to summarise just briefly and give us a bit of background into what these crazy TV shows are even all about. What's it all about, Adrian? Adrian, well, oh, I can't speak today. You can't, um, Adrian. Uh, what's it all about, Adrian? <laughs> Adrian, which sounds more like a, a good British seventy sci-fi name. It does actually, to Adrian. So I'm Adrian, and I will tell you all about <laughs> um, both Space 1999 and Blake Seven, two titles with numbers quite hard to say one and both annoy me it's too many nines 1999 too many nines <laughs> nine, nine, nine. and yeah, there's no apostrophe in blake's just gonna get that out of the way at the beginning um because you know because <laughs> it's not mr it's not rog blake's that's not no. his name anyway <laughs> anyway space anyway. 1999 is a british science fiction television program that ran for two series from 1975 to 1977 it was the last production by the partnership of jerry and sylvia anderson and was the most expensive series produced for British television up to that time. Two series of the programme were produced, each comprising 24 episodes. Production of the first series was from April 1973 to February 1975, and production of the second was from January 76 to December 1976. The show starred actors Martin Landau, Barbara Bain and Barry Morse, and each episode ran for 50 minutes, with a pilot episode entitled Breakaway. These are from Wikipedia, by the way. I'm not claiming ownership of these. It's just no. easier to just see the summaries there. Blake Seven was a British science fiction television program produced by the BBC. Four 13 episode series were broadcast on BBC One between January 1978 and December 1981. Each episode ran for similarly 50 minutes and was watched by approximately 10 million people in the UK. Quite a lot. The main character, at least initially, was Rog Blake. Played by Gareth Thomas. The series had a low budget, but featured many tropes of space opera such as spaceships, robots, galactic empires, and aliens. <laughs> I don't really think that <laughs> sentence needs to be in there. <laughs> it had them. It, it, it did have them. It, it does have them. Budget versions. <laughs> Aldi versions. <laughs> yeah. It's like Little, little Seven. Um, yes, it's the Aldi Star Wars. The first episode, going up against Space 1999's Breakaway, was entitled The Way Back. And that's bum, bum, where we bum. Are. Brilliant. 
brilliant. So we've got there a little bit of background into those two shows. You may wonder why we've chosen them. They're both ensemble, they're both British sci-fi, and they're both in around the same time period. There you go. Not giving you any more reason than that, because that's why we chose them. We don't pick these things out of a hat or anything like that. In fact, we take long, a lot of time and care to make sure that there is a there's an alignment. You know, ensemble casts, peril. Yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. There's also many pictures on our dart board, and this is just where our darts hit. But you know, <laughs> there is that. Yes, <laughs> the, uh, saying that. <laughs> the sci-fi darts landed where they landed. Okay, sci-fi just deal darts with that. that fly with it. <laughs> yeah, when they Sound hit the target, it was... <laughs> <laughs> and they're also they're also seven dimensional. <laughs> yeah, and every time um, every time they call the darts or the scores at the end, you get like a dramatic dun dun because <laughs> that seems to happen every time in uh, some science fiction programs that we might mention today. Okay, well, let's get things started. Um, I'll start that again. I'm having a weird mouth day. I can't explain it. I just am. Um, let's get things, let's, hey, let's get things started. Let's get things started. Um, with a discussion of the story, obviously, and the characters. And this begins with you, Mr. Mills, and Blake Seven. Go for it. Okay, Blake Seven. Right. So, living his best life in a series of white corridors, Rog Blake has been <laughs> invited to a clandestine invitation outside by Ravella and Dal. Who these people are? It don't matter. They're just two characters that have invited him outside. Why do you even care? It don't matter. <laughs> but they're they're trailed, however, by the sneaky Dev, uh, Dev, someone or other. Dirty Dev. Dirty so Dev. Predates Dirty Den. He's Dirty Dev. <laughs> He's Dirty Dev. Um, after some crafty lock picking and wind up toy usage, they find themselves in more corridors, and then finally outside. Taking a quick squig from a local pond, as you do, Rogers asked if he remembers anything about the treatments he underwent, but remembers no such treatment. What are you talking about, he says. No, it's not sure what you're on about. Uh, very soon, they're in more corridors with the filthy outsiders, you know, at which... Dirty, d- spit d- when dirty filthy outsiders. <laughs> and Rogers introduced to Bran, not uh, the flakes, but the character, who is the leader of the outsiders. Rog is told that his family are all dead. Subtle, that... <laughs> He's <laughs> like, so I'm sorry, Rog, they're dead. They've been dead for four yeah. years, executed four years ago. And it's like, I don't know what? how to sugarcoat this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just like the brand flakes. I don't like them sugarcoated. Um, <laughs> so, it's, so it's like, no, but he kept the not. I, I spoke with him on the vid phone or something last week. No, you didn't. That's still just, that's, <laughs> you're just, you know, no, you didn't. That's just created by the uh, Federation. Was just an electro or scan. Yeah. That was it just was, a, yeah. Someone, yeah, just an electro scan. <laughs> Needs to be neutralized. Anyway, Rog, he used to be, you used to be, tells him Brown, uh, used to be leader of the rebellion before he was captured and placed into intensive therapy, which included running down corridors and being, being repeatedly hit with a lead pipe. That's some therapy. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not subtle. It's heavy handed therapy, but therapy <laughs> all the same. Therapy all the same. Roger's not sure about all this and needs to think that uh, wanders off. Bran calls a meeting and there was much rejoicing. That bit had me laughing for ages. It's really funny. It's like, hello, settle down, settle down. Like golf claps all around. It's just, yay, well done. He just goes off for a think. I like the idea. So I'm just going to go over there to that bit over there. Is that the thinking corner? I'm going there. That other corridor. However, deployed in their golf buggies, the guards of the Terran Federation turn up and kill everyone. (laughs) It's golf buggies. (laughs) They literally are golf buggies. There is much death and overacting, and Rog makes his way back only to be arrested, whereupon he recalls the corridors of his treatment and the running and the man with the lead pipe once again as a bit of a flashback and passes out. At this point, the administration, the Federation, whatever they're called, the Terran Federation, they make a choice. Um, Sat around on comfy sofas and in in, in natty tunics, they make a choice to frame. (laughs) very plush uh, to frame Raj for some reason by creating an illusion of reality 
which it turns out is is very simple to do. Don't worry about that. It's very simple to do. <laughs> it's like okay, sounds quite technical to me, but no, no, no. Don't you worry your pretty little head about it. Yeah. Uh, Rice is accused of assaulting and corrupting miners. That's miners with an O, not diggy miners. That's, that's of all the things you could choose. I know. That seems you know. It seems it's pretty really dark. Bleak. It's pretty dark. Yeah, especially when you see the list of crimes he's, com- uh, he's accused of on the big big it's big bad. printer screen. He's also uh, accused of moral deviation as well kind of odd um and he has assigned a lawyer roger's no idea what this is all about but the children have been doped into thinking bad things have been done to them and they you know their testimony is uh is taken as word at the trial roger's found guilty after the sacred swapping of the clear balls from pink boxes and flashing lights <laughs> i don't know what that was all about it's the, it's the, the lottery that is the, the legal system <laughs> it's like do absolutely the balls today have been picked from galahad um <laughs> And the jury computer of Delvian too. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's sentenced to life uh, life imprisonment at the penal colony and what I think was Cygnus Alpha. Could yeah, that's correct. Uh, for the rest of his life, obviously, yeah, for the rest of his life. Unable to handle this, he faints. <laughs> like, oh. It would be pretty shocking on top of all he, the other stuff. Uh, he goes, and once again, sees his treatment and the corridor and the man with the lead pipe. Get used to seeing that. It's like, just, we've, got, we've got to fill up 50 minutes. We've only got 45. Oh, I just stick the lead pipe guy in again. <laughs> Upon waking, Rog finds himself in a transit cell with a thief at Villa Restal and Jenna Stannis, awaiting transfer to the penal colony. Meanwhile, the lawyer suspects not everything is as it seems and starts digging into the evidence against Rog, which may have been better done before going to trial. What do I know? I'm no fancy space lawyer. <laughs> You keep that kind of crazy legal talk to yourself. Know, Everyone investigates the, investigates their uh, defendants afterwards. after they've been yeah, convicted of, for, and sent away for life. Yeah. Anyway, the lawyer's investigation is leading to the dead bodies of the outsiders and the attention of the Federation, and Dev turns up and kills the lawyer and his wife. End of that story. <laughs> that ain't going nowhere. Yeah, brutal. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's brutal. It's also like, oh, done. Uh, oh, yeah, you're, okay. you're, that's the end of that. That's the end of that now. Yeah, any hope Rog had for escape is dashed, and he and the other people from the cell are transported off-world to Cygnus Alpha. There you go. Um, there's not the characters. Rog is a bit wandering, a bit non. He's a bit. Uh, what? I didn't do anything. Uh, what? I didn't do anything. Fate, lead pipe. It's not much of a character in this. He just sort of wanders about and sort of just led mm. about by the nose. Uh, what's his face? The other two characters that will go through the rest of the season, uh, Villa Restel and Jenna Stennis, they're kind of just set up very, uh, very broad stroke characters. You know, one's a thief. One's obviously the pretty... Pretty seventeenth love interest thief turned magician because he's always trying to trick some guard all the time with <laughs> yeah. his magic. It's really well, weird. Well, the thing is, I've only gone on what's in this episode, so I don't know what comes later. So I'm just saying what's here. Not good things. It's not really good, and that's about it. It's a rather dark opener. This with everything that Blake comes into contact with dying, sometimes brutally. See the massacre of the outsiders. He's also charged with several cases of child abuse as well, and shows that this incumbent power are not averse to smearing someone with awful crimes to get what they want. Then at the end, he's on his way to prison. This ain't a cheery start. This is not. This is a bleak opener um, in many ways, and despite some of its low budget hiccups, I thought this was all right. Um, it wasn't. You know, I'm surprised it ran for four series after this because this doesn't feel like um, like something that's going to drag in a lot of people. It feels kind of dark and bleak. Ten million people. Yeah, it's peak. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's all right. I thought I, 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 I give this a seven for its story and opening characters. I think it sets up yeah. the sets up the space quite well, despite its low budgetness and its. But it's it's. 
thematic dystopian overview of a sort of Orwellian future that we have um, is uh, is portrayed quite well, and the, the sort of the sort of Kafkaesque touches of the trial, and not knowing what you're on trial for, and things like that. Um, I quite enjoyed this. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, Seven. good writing in there. I think it's Terry Nation, isn't it? So it's good writing in there. Well, yeah, Terry Nation did both, didn't he? So. Yeah. There you go. That's what I say. So a seven. Um, what do I think? I've always liked Blake Seven. Um, it surprised me, actually, because um, I hadn't watched it for quite a while. And it's been a show that I've gone back to a couple of different times. Um, and I actually made an effort to watch the entire, all four seasons. I watched the whole, not just for this podcast, but in a recent, I've been trying to do a bit of revisionist sci-fi stuff and watch some of these old, you know, older shows. And I actually, it was a lot darker and a lot bleaker than I remembered. The writing was pretty taut. The acting is obviously it, well. We'll come to a little bit more about that. But um, in terms of its story and its characters, um, there's some good setup and there's some really nice. It's it's actually this episode and the episode that comes after it are actually quite good setups for what then Blake Seven sort of is a little bit. The beginning belies where it ends because where it ends up because up to this point they're in the prison ship and then they're getting transported to the prison planet and that's when they encounter the liberator and then things change en route to that so the next episode builds up the story a bit more and they get on board the liberator which is an i think a beautifully designed spaceship one of my favorite sci-fi spaceships of all time and so for this episode it, it does lead you up to that it just the one thing i found is that it's very difficult to align yourself with any character in it because you they're all kind of horrible. There's no really no characters in it that are really affable or, or nice. You don't align yourself, and that's quite unusual. Normally, there'd be a, a start, you know, a Luke Skywalker character somewhere, maybe that you would align yourself with a little bit, you know. But because Blake's pretty horrible as it goes, and he's just moaning all the time. Um, and the other characters <laughs> yeah. that he surrounds himself with later, like Villa, they're all they're all initially they're all kind of very very weary of each other, and they're all trying to do each other in. Avon, when he comes into it, is a much better character. But even he is there's not a nice character. They're all. But they're all very weary of each other. And I find that quite intriguing that for a pilot episode of a show, there's no characters, there's no situational characters that are likable. You're chasing a basically a, you know, a criminal that's been sent to a prison planet for horrible crimes. And then, you know, maybe they've been framed. There's this federation. It's all very bleak. I agree with you. And I think seven's a good number, actually. Um, yeah. I was talking, I actually gave it an eight, but I'd go for a seven just on balance because, you know, what's the difference? It's, there's little issues here and there, isn't there with it? Like you say, there's, Silly throwaway sci-fi elements. Um, so like the trial, you know, they could have done that better. You know, I mean, it, it's better than yeah. Buck Rogers is where it's just a lot of like, illuminated clocks, but it's just that they wheel in the giant <laughs> light bulb, don't they? It's beep, 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 guilty. <laughs> it's a bit weird, but I suppose it, it is yeah. the future. Yeah, it is the future. <laughs> yeah, they've got hundreds and hundreds of uh, ones to get through. They can't do proper trials anymore. It's just like wheel them in, get the balls out. Galahad yeah. says that, off you go. <laughs> So many criminals, and then I forget what they're even in there for. Villa's in there for something weird, and Thievery, Callie's think, in it? there for something weird. Yeah, essentially something like that. Yeah, but because you know, you know, there's not many people in that cell. No, and then I can't remember why which part. I think it's the second episode where obviously we are only dealing with the pilot, but that's where Avon comes in. Avon is actually on that prison ship because Avon is another permanent character throughout the whole series, um, and Avon's actually a, is like a super technical expert. Is a bit like a modern character. He would be kind of the nerdy geek kind of character but in that he is like a computer science technology expert and he's the one that sort of decodes things figures stuff out connects things he's that guy in this show but he doesn't start out that way it's quite interesting how he's very into himself and in it for himself it's, it's there's some good characters they develop into but at this stage it's a bit weird that you know you see blake get bashed on the bonce about seven times with a dying pipe you're like okay i get it he got bashed on the head <laughs> yes, <laughs> Move on. he did so seven, I, I agree. Seven is good for that, I think. Okay. Okay. Well, let me let me regale you of the future, the Space 1999 future. This is September 
1999 we're talking about, the future, as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. And we find ourselves checking in on Moon Base Alpha, a large and elaborate base set upon the surface of the moon for scientific and astronomical research and as a launch point for deep space exploration from here. The intention is to launch a manned deep space probe to a planet called Meta, which seems to have both an atmosphere, radio signals, and some kind of indications of intelligent life. It's a bit of a mystery. Also, in this somewhat environmentally shaky future, and for reasons of utter plot convenience, contaminated atomic waste from Earth is being safely stored, (laughs) aka dumped, in giant storage shafts that look like massive space nipples on the surface (laughs) of the moon and then sealed in. It's proper proper moon boobs. (laughs) It's moon boobs. It's moon boobs. Massive moon boobs. Space nipples, moon boobs. Of the two areas designated for this, one is now chock full, and so they are depositing more nuclear crap in the second area. (laughs) While the facility is being checked for leaks by Jim Nordstrom and his fellow technician, and what looks like an oil dip stip and a Major Morgan toy, and under the watchful (laughs) eyes of Professor Victor Bergman, played by Barry Morse, and Dr. Helena Russell, played by Barbara Bain, who, by the way, was the wife of uh, Martin Landau at this point, yeah. Nordstrom goes berserk and attacks his colleague before running headfirst into a laser fence. Now, we've spoken in our other sister podcast about moon fences <laughs> and what happens if you go erecting them arbitrarily. So, okay, he runs into a moon fence, doesn't come out very well. He bounces onto a moon rock, then crashes his helmet. Ouch. <laughs> or cracks his helmet. Ouch. <laughs> and then dies from severe lack of oxygen and wanging of the eye. Yeah, beware of the man with the waggy eye. You're going to need to remember that for this. Uh, something isn't right on Moon Base Alpha, and we learn that this has been happening with more and more frequency. With as yet no explanation that makes sense. Could it be the nuclear waste or the radiation? Whatever the reason, it is infecting and killing all the astronauts, and it turns out you really need them when you're doing space missions. Yeah, anyway, do. while this is going on, John Koenig, played by Martin Landau, is in transit from Earth to assume command of the moon base and both investigate the deaths of the crew and ensure that the mission to Meta remains on track at all costs. This is in spite of the alarming and unexplained madness of deaths, which as yet have no direct cause. Koenig is given the remit by Gerald Simmons, chief executive of the World Space Commission, who's got a very suspicious beard um, <laughs> in, this, in this particular, it's a bit like Kenny Everett, um, which is, you know, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, missing he's, gib. he's, he's missing Gibb. <laughs> He's, he's one of the Gibbs. Um, he's the chief executive of the World Space Commission, you know, and he's given Koenig the remit to investigate the Meta astronaut sickness, but ensure that the mission to Meta goes ahead at all costs. Nothing can stop them. Remember nope. that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Koenig speaks to Dr. Russell, who leads the medical team, and she says they do not know what or why the men are all getting wangy eyes and going crazy. I'm paraphrasing there. <laughs> Professor Bergman confirms that the radiation is all... That's some doctor. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, know why. I don't know. They're all going wangy eyes and going crazy. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> Professor Bergman confirms that the radiation has all proven to be normal and that no leaks are occurring. In spite of all this evidence, they are asked to keep the details quiet um, so as not to jinx the potential mission to Meta. Remember, whatever happens, no matter how many people die, we're still going to Meta, all right? Absolutely. There's a message for our future. There is. So anyway, so Koenig starts poking his nose into things and decides to recheck the waste disposal area too to see if he can see what is happening. When they're en route, they navigate via a navigation beacon that resides in waste disposal area one. I'm sensing that there's a, a strange mapping going on anyway. Koenig asks for a quick flyby, just in case, to check it out, though he's reminded that it's all safe and has been dormant and inactive for five years. Anyway, he still does it. However, Collins, the pilot, gets a twitchy eye at this point. He does. And, uh, Very twitchy. And that ain't good. That ain't good at all. Their check of the waste disposal area two yields no leaks, issues, or problems, obviously. But while they examine the site, Collins, with the twitchy, now white and gammy eye, goes apeshit. Clearly infected with the sickness, 
and attacks Bergman and Koenig before attempting to smash a window, which is generally a bad idea when you're in space or on a moon because of obviously the decompression. Collins is stunned with a zapper, which you never see before, since, or ever again. And they all manage to escape. Looks like a stapler, illuminated stapler. And they all manage to escape before the windows break and the room decompresses. But another pilot is now suffering from a wangy eye and he's in a coma. Never good. Mm-hmm. We're still no link between the kind of radiation leak and the deaths of all the meta astronauts and more getting sick and wangy eyes. Koenig decides that enough is enough and that they must suspend the meta launch until they know what is killing everyone. He comes clean to everyone, telling that the Earth Command is trying to cover up the death so the launch can still go ahead. Nobody reacts to that when he says that. Nobody reacts. Just as like a complete... And this show is famous for its lack of reaction. It's like if you tell someone really bad news, they're like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> so honestly, it's just like a program where nobody really reacts. It's the military way. It's the military way. They, they just way. look stern. They look stern, then you get the music. Dun, dun, dun. So, it's all, so you imagine every time I'm saying any of these things, he's got a wangy eye. Still reaction. Dun, Dun, dun. That's what it's like. Anyway, more poking around ensues, and it comes to light that the affected astronauts had all flown through, over, or near Area 1, a.k.a. Waste Disposal Area 1, where they've already dumped a load of nuclear waste, and all of them had done so via navigation beacon Delta on the far side of the moon. Even their special flight recording devices had, mal- had malfunctioned there for two minutes each, and Collins, his eye went wangy there as well. Something is fishy, something they could have and should have figured out way before it took all those people to die from it. Where have they all been recently? There's only two locations on here, and one of them is that one. It's not hard to figure out. Anyway, some doctor, I'm thinking, the doctors and scientists, I'm questioning their ability here. What, where have they all been? Well, there's nothing wrong with Area 2. Where, they've all been via Area 1. Mm. Anyway, um, so they obviously they realised that the astronauts and shuttle pilots had all flown over or near that area, and they're all affected by something. Even the meta-astronauts have been using that as a training ground. They're all affected. Mm-hmm. Then... Out of the blue, a uh, sudden steep rise in heat is detected in waste disposal area one for no reason whatsoever. It's not radiation, it's heat without atomic activity. As the security cameras of area one succumb to the heat lightning and the moon nipples of atomic waste look unstable, um, like, <laughs> they start to wobble, they start to shimmy, um, they, send, <laughs> they send an eagle ship. By the way, the ships, the ships I'm going to refer to in this um, are all called Eagles, the famous Space 1999 ship, which has the kind of a blob at one end, sort of a structure quite, in the middle. Quite, and the quite jet, insectoid. Insectoid looking, yeah. They're called Eagles. And they're disposable. Yeah. You'll know this by the end of this. They they, they must have hundreds of these things because <laughs> they, they just trash these things at a rate of knots. Anyway, so they um, they send in an eagle in now. Say a disposable piloted by Koenig himself for no reason whatsoever. He just wants a bit of bit of bit glory, I think, um, to check on what's happening. Koenig's eagle is overwhelmed with magnetic energy and crashes in a heap, and he is rescued. Which you don't see, but you just have to assume happens. But what happened? And why was the heat rising in waste disposal area one? And how many of these eagles do they have lying around? That's the question I have to ask, because there's loads of them. Tons of them. Eventually, they figure out the issue isn't radiation and never was. I'm questioning the science again. <laughs> it's magnetic energy output from the atomic waste dumping that is causing the weird rise in heat. The crashing of Koenig's eagle and the deadly brain issues and the death is all part of the same problem. It's crazy old magnetism on an atomic deadly scale. Magnetic energy causing brain damage and wangy eyes. All makes sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It really does. Luckily... Luckily, and for reasons of pure plot convenience, Area 1 burnt itself out in a magnetic firestorm, so it presents no more trouble whatsoever. But what about Area 2, which is way bigger and still having atomic waste shoved in it? They run a check with yet another Eagle ship, this one remotely. Yes, that other one, I suppose this one explodes. All seems normal in Area 2 until a sudden spike in magnetic energy causes that remote Eagle to wobble and shimmy and then crash and explode into some more atomic nipples. Mm-hmm. Um, they decide it's t- atomic nipple sounds like it all like a pop group, doesn't it? I was atomic, <laughs> atomic kittens. Was something similar. Atomic kittens. <laughs> anyway, they decide it's time for emergency code alpha one. If it, about time they called that. It turns out it wasn't radiation. It was 
magnetic radiation, quote unquote. And with all the atomic nipples in waste disposal area two now looking dodgy, as well as the moon base in the waste disposal areas, it means they're all sitting on a potential bomb. Oddly, upon getting upon getting Koenig's report and emergency code Alpha One call, Earth sends the commissioner to check out what is going on about. Since he seems to have turned on, since he seems to have turned on them somewhat, and they reveal that not only is there 140 times more more atomic waste in area two, but the heat is already rising. That <clears throat> can't speak today. I'll start from just from here, Bigot. And they reveal that, and they reveal that not only is there 140 times more atomic waste in area two, but the heat is already rising there because of the magnetic radiation, and that this could lead to a chain reaction, a bad one. And since the process has begun, they're running out of time. They attempt to try and dismantle, disperse some of the atomic waste and ship it elsewhere. But the magnetic radiation starts to break the navigation systems of the Eagle spaceships and starts to wangy all their eyes. And get, doesn't, <laughs> at this point, it stops affecting them physically. It just affects the ships. They're all trying to get all the waste out of there and hide it in lunar orbit and dump it elsewhere. But, well, it's all in vain. As the heat starts to rise uncontrollably, things start to look really shit. The magnetic radiation spikes massively. Eagle ships start to explode. And it's mission abort at this point. Massive nuclear explosions rock the moon base as the atomic waste nipples in Area 1 go critical. Oh, sorry, in Area 2 go critical and explode, sending violent shockwaves across the moon. The explosion is so powerful that it pushes the moon away from the Earth's orbit and accelerates the moon away from the Earth. As the Earth becomes more and more distant, the crew of the moon base at Eagle and the Eagle ships in orbit struggle to move due to the acceleration. It's a very strange bit where they're just frozen. It's, the, gra- the, spot. it's the gravity, isn't it? Gravity it's the gravity pushing. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, the Eagle ships try and call out to the moon base. Gradually, the moon base begins to decelerate enough so that the crew can move and they surmise that the explosion of the nuclear materials has acted like a giant propulsion rocket initially and now, because the waste has stopped Fissioning, that's their term, not mine. They were slowing down. That's not how space works. Don't worry about that. <laughs> no, but <laughs> the acceler- space works. No, but I sp- the, it, well, I suppose in their, t- I suppose the the acceleration is slowing down, which allows them. The, the whole point is that the gravity gets less as you less as you accelerate less, because you you reach a sort of point of we're going this fast. Well, yeah, but they said it's decelerating. They wouldn't be decelerating. No, they, they wouldn't get any faster, but they would simply carry on at that speed no, forever. Their acceleration, they'd still be picking up space, but the, yeah. yeah. It's, anyway, it's 70 it's, sci-fi. It's sci-fi. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it becomes clear the crew of the moon base are now traveling away from Earth and there is no way of them returning. They ask the computer, this is my favorite bit of this, by the way. They ask the computer about contingency plan Exodus, which has at this point never been mentioned before. Nope. Which, and the computer explains that one, the moon is on an unknown trajectory. Two, they are experiencing constantly changing G-forces due to the moon's movement away from the Earth. And three, that it has insufficient data to calculate a new flight plan. In summary, the computer hasn't got a Scooby-Doo what to do, <laughs> no. and it's all down to human decision that's required. Useful. Yeah. Useful. The crew are naturally upset, or as upset as this crew ever reveals themselves to be. <laughs> which is uh, dun, dun, Which is dun. just a you know, lack of reaction. There's no way to get back to Earth and no way of Earth mounting a rescue as they are too far away and accelerating or at least decelerating. I don't know what they're doing. They're moving. They are cut off from planet Earth. They have, they have, but they do have power, environment, and therefore a possibility of survival, to quote uh, Koenig. But if they try to make a plan to get back to Earth without the travel plots and resources, it would fail. So they resign to not try. A final news broadcast reveals that the moon's sudden departure from the Earth's orbit has caused terrible damage in terms of earthquakes and weather and all that kind of thing. The moon is now beyond the reach of Earth and the moon base loses contact finally. Just static and then they see the strange meta signal in the display. Could the signals from there be some kind of hope or beacon? Koenig decides that even though they have no way of directing their trajectory at all, they will aim to get to meta. On September the 13th, 1999, the meta signal is increasing and maybe that it was where they will find hope, survival and a better understanding of astrophysics. <laughs> and potentially me- basic medicines and sort of you know, logic. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there's a lot, 
a lot happens in the pilot episode of Space 1999, and it sets it up for what it's actually meant to be. The remit for this, old, by the way, this without going into all the history of it, this is actually sort of an offshoot of TV series UFO, which yeah, was yeah. set for another series, and then they made this because they couldn't make that. And there's a whole histrionics, which I'm not going to go into. But suffice to say that this they wanted a show that was that, that could not be set, you know, on Earth. They didn't want that. They didn't want that whole idea of you know people going to an Earth-like planet and all that kind of thing. So they figured the best way to do that is just put them on the moon and fire them off into space. I kind of admire that logic. Yeah, I do. This, this cannot be set on Earth because there's no way. It's always it's always heading away from it in some way. And of course, adventures ensue and they come across all sorts of stuff. Now, there is a big split in Space 1999 between Season 1 and Season 2, which we'll come to maybe later when we discuss things. But this is pilot for Season 1. There's a lot of good characters in here. They don't react a lot, but this is much better at setting up characters that you might have an affinity with. There's enough of them. But a lot of disposable crew. It owes a lot to Star Trek. Lots to Star Trek. This and some, so some, some in some essence things like I think less like Star Wars and more like Star Trek actually. But there is that well, production Wars, level. Yeah, but it's, but it's but it's production level and stuff like that. No, they knew that these things were out there and they were happening and things like that. But it predates that. But this is on the back of all of the amazing work that was done in the Thunderbirds and all of those sort of Jerry Anderson shows. So it's like a live action Thunderbirds, really, or. A, live action version of one of those shows which explains why the characters are so wooden in it maybe yeah possibly. Uh, it was it was, hev- it was heavily criticized for that but from a story perspective i really like the story space 1999 and so much happens in this and it's so explosive and exciting that it's, it's genuinely good fodder the characters they're all a bit wooden and they're all a bit staged and that's my only issue with it so i actually gave this a six for its st- well I gave it a seven, and then the characters bring it bring it down. So it's got a great story, but the characters just aren't quite. They don't really gel together. They don't seem to really like each other that much. Um, well, see, I, so I, I don't know. I don't know. Six, but I, there is an argument that Koenig is new, so that he doesn't know him that well at this point. Maybe so. Yeah, there's you yeah, know, he's maybe, new to the thing, maybe. and it's setting up quite a few, quite a lot of characters, so they don't get much screen screen space time. I quite like the uh, the uh, main scientist guy. And the uh, you know the business guy, or the head of the space, whatever he is, who comes space up, space uh, commissioner, the, the missing, the missing Gib. Um, he's um, <laughs> he's pretty good because he's you know, he's what he is. He's the face of finance, and that's one of the things about this show that I like. Um, you know, the latent threat of nuclear fuel, what to do with radioactive waste, prevalent in the seventies. That obviously that was yeah, becoming a concern. So. so this plays on those kind of fears. It's a cautionary tale of what can happen because of humankind's inability. Yeah. Very cr- diverse crew as well. Very, Very diverse, diverse yeah. crew for its time, um, which is always good. Yeah, and it's humankind's inability to control itself and also and always look for the quick solution. Number one's full, so just shove it all in number two. It's like, <laughs> you know, we always had a big problem with number one. We'll put more in number two. What could possibly go wrong? Well, yeah. as if it were not enough that we messed up the Earth, we spread to the moon and end up blasting it into space for our own lack of ability to see the consequences of our actions. It's a it's a cautionary sort of ecological tale. This cautionary know. tale, yeah. Don't, yeah, yeah. don't blow the moon. Don't, bl- don't, don't, you know, there are consequences to the things we do. Um, and I think that's t- it was timely at the time. It's even more timely now when I was watching it. Climate crisis and the Earth is currently facing, and all things like that's going on right now. It's, it's you know, it's, it's for me the core of this was greed and money at war with the planet's stability. It's that kind. Of, it's that yeah, story. Yeah, it's got that it, eco. I suppose it has, that, does have that eco. It's that story in it because like the the thing to meta has to go ahead. The thing has to go ahead. Progress has to happen. We have to do this. We've sunk all this money into it. It ain't stopping. Yeah, but we're gonna gonna. Th- all this thing over here is going to blow stuff up. Don't matter. Just keep going. We'll send the man up with the power up to tell you what to do. And it's like mm, that. Don't matter when something's going to go boom. And so yeah, and of course they you know, they they encounter all sorts of interesting stuff. It does go a bit Star Trek as a series. 
Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of inevitability. But as a setup, you know, it's good. So I it don't is. Know. I, I gave what it seven. You, what did you score it? Okay, I gave it seven. Okay, yeah. Because uh, I, I think I think like I was I was a higher eight and a six for the character. I was up one higher, I think, for the actual story. Because I think the story in here, as you said, is is exciting, is well done, is interesting. Um, it is exciting. I mean, there's no way around that. Yeah, and and I was watching it, going, you know what? This is actually better than I remember. <laughs> this is cool. Um, and I, I like that the the parallels that we have, you know. And again, it's not it's not particularly happy. <laughs> and also, as well, what I thought about this was that what I didn't realize because I hadn't actually watched this in you know many many years was how much. This probably did inspire Battlestar. Yeah. Because Battlestar is essentially a colony getting blasted off into space and having to survive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like we said about Battlestar, though, these are just you know, ancient tales retold out there. Yeah. So I think that's the thing with this. It's like, and like you said, it's 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 Star Trek, but without the ability to go back home. You know, it's like. Yeah. Yeah. And um, not on a, you know, on a spaceship, on a moon. On I don't, a moon. I, can't, I'm, I don't know how much, how it all plays out. I'm gonna have to, I haven't watched, you know, a lot more of them recently. I'm, my intention is to go back and perhaps watch them all. But like I said, it's a, it's a season, it's a show of two seats, two completely separate seasons, as is the yeah. curse for almost all of these shows. And again, we'll come to that bit. Okay, so seven yeah. then for for that. I think this is what we settled on. I think, and so. that's a, that's a seven. That's a seven each. So that we're even, this. Stevens at the moment. Yeah, we are. Um, that could all change. That could all change. It might change um, as we dive into our next category. And so it uh, it leaves um, it's a discussion now really around the costumes and sets, and I shall take the lead on this myself. So we're talking now about um, the costumes and sets of Blake Seven. <laughs> now, my first comment, my first comment here about the cost, <laughs> we'll go with cost- costumes first. There are a lot of tunics <laughs> in this dystopian future. Uh, this is this this is the show of tunics. Somebody's cornered the market on the tunics, haven't yeah, they? Totally, honestly, the future is bright. The future is tunics for this. Blake is generally kitted out with a green tunic, and, and this is the pilot. It does all the the outfits change a lot in Blake Seven, I have to say, and with a quite a sort of the flowing undershirt. Um, he spends most of his time in this, and what looks like a standard future issue pair of green chinos, and mm-hmm. and. It's nice to know that um, Clark still operates shoes sales in this dystopian future. <laughs> There's one future. thing about the future you, you know that will survive. It's cockroaches and Clarks. <laughs> cockroaches, and, cockroaches and Clarks. Clark shoes. Uh, Avon, of course. Well, Avon, you don't really see him so much in this other thing, but he's, he's often in a grey tunic. Gan, which we do see, I think, briefly in this. He's in a grey shirt with a brown open vest because of all that burl. He's a burly man. He's Gan. <laughs> Jenna is in a dark grey sort of top, purple belt, glitter shoulders and glittery boots, of course, space boots. And Villa, he's got a multicoloured over tunic. So that's what we like to call Ooh, that. Lovely. What does all this mean? I sense a future with a distinct lack of fashion designers, that's for sure. Or mm-hmm. at least someone that adheres to the principles has got one cut, one, one pattern. And that pattern was the pattern of tunic. Uh, generally, the tunic to ordinary citizen ratio is very high in this show. The more elaborate your tunic, the more rebellious you are, which seems weird. Um, the costumes worn by Federation soldiers are a complete contrast, a good complete contrast. They're a odd combination of black one-piece boiler suit with some kind of gas mask over the head, balaclava type deal, and a plastic ring around the top of the head. They usually have an over-the-shoulder strap and utility belt, all black, and carry some kind of gun that fires bullets, or at least fires sparks. Anyway, <laughs> that's also black as well. They're pretty, yeah, I think, pretty sinister looking, albeit that they travel on golf carts. 
and very, very similar to the Khaled uh, soldiers in the Doctor Who episode Genesis of the Daleks, which is also by Terry Nation. The costume designer for all of, for not just her, there's a team, but the costume, main costume designer for this particular pilot was a lady called Barbara Lane, who worked on the first nine episodes of Blake Seven. She'd also done Doctor Who, several episodes of that, but also went on to work on the film Willow and the Dungeon Dragons film that came out in the year 2000. A very talented woman who very much likes tunics because there's a lot of that in Willow and there's a lot of that in the Dungeon Dragons film. Yeah, there really is. She likes the tunic. Anyway, there is a clear delineation here. So what you tend to find is that the tunic wearing sort of ragger citizens, for want of a better description, the, the ones that are in the, the rebellious types tend to be more scruffy looking, peasantry looking, very Doctor Who inspired type sort of costume, but that's fine. It's probably what they had. The mid-level executives who make the decisions tend to be sort of in more in more formal wear, but again, Less tunicky, I think, but just kind of formal, future formal, futurist formal. And then obviously you've got the soldiers. And later in the episodes, you've got characters like Servalan and, and things like that who have sort of their own sense of style and everything. So very interesting. The fashion for Blake 7 is actually one of the one of its key things as it rolls out into the episodes. It becomes quite the thing, especially when some of the later characters come into it. But in this episode, it very much just dictates your role in the drama, if you are, you know, if you're one of Blake's people, you're going to be wearing a tunic and you're going to look a bit scruffy around the edges, unless you've got space boots, sparkly boots. There isn't a lot of, gla- it's not like Book Rogers glamorization of characters. I think that's very important to say. So none of these, they all kind of look the same. There's no, no, they, they don't suddenly, they, no, a sparkly 70s uh, woman in the shape of, um, like she did in Book Rogers. There's none of that in Blake Seven. It's just everyone's kind of dressed, you know, for the for the for the drama. There's no sexy outfits or anything like that. At least not at this stage, anyway. Um, and thank God because I don't think I'm ready to see Blake in a pair of uh, sparkly underpants of any in any, <laughs> no one any time frame. So that's kind of where the costumes are at now. Uh, costumes. I actually quite like the costumes for this because they're kept simple. And as the drama rolls out, it's kind of classic BBC drama costume. So you know when they come across you know an ancient form of life on a another planet or whatever and if they're like cavemen well you know they're going to be wearing caveman type stuff so you know fur underpants and that kind of thing it's just it's, it's costume designed to that type but the crew and the way they interact and some of the futuristic space outfits that they come across with some of the other races well again it's lending itself to that star trek tradition and because star trek sort of set the standard for that kind of space wear as it were and it does lend itself to that but i quite liked the costumes sets at least for the pilot episode, are an odd mix of underground bunker-type shelters, seemingly casual living meeting rooms, a detention cell, and sets built to look like the interior of spaceships. Um, Indeed, interior spaceship sets and other indoor scenes were recorded on videotape at BBC Television Centre in Shepherds Bush in London at the time. For indoor um, complexes such as bases or command centre bunkers, filming often took place in local power plants and water turbine stations, which they shot on film. Location shooting was also extensive, with shooting occurring mostly in southern England, for example, Scribble and Bray near Maidenhead, uh, Moncton, Farley, Eastern Quarry near Caution, Wilshire, and even on the sets of uh, even on some sets that were built at Ealing Film Studios. This actually had four general operating sets at any given time, including at least three external locations. Very busy to try and catch, to try and sort of be around all of that. Mm-hmm. The set designs themselves, I think, are clearly influenced by things like Stanley Kubrick's 2001: A Space Odyssey, and um, similarly how how um, Space 1999 was, but this is perhaps less. This is a BBC version of that. But let's just let's just put that out there. All right, this is just bit. There's a lot of MDF in here. I'm not even sure they even had, even if they had MDF at this point. A seemingly endless supply of interesting design chairs. Indeed, there's an entire website <laughs> devoted to them called the Chairs of Blake Seven. I recommend you uh, go and look at that. I'll put the link in the show notes. Fascinating. It absolutely blew my mind that somebody had 
take it. In fact, the actual Watching Blake 7 blog site is amazing. It's an amazing Blake 7 resource. So much of the bits I've learned about this are, are on there. We'll make sure that link's in there and all credit to the people, piece, person, people who've written all the articles of that because there's some early in-depth stuff in there. Um, classically, for this type of future, there are often casual chairs and sofas, some obliga- um, obligatory button controls, casual tables, and big screens on the wall. Starts to sound quite prophetic, really, when you think of it. You know, mm-hmm. Casual chairs, big screens. And, of course, the automated shh, shh doors. Well, I think Star Trek, maybe that started that, but every future door has to have a shh, shh sound, which is odd because they don't. This is the weird thing. Why don't they? We should have that, but we don't, do we? No door makes that sound weird. No. Nope. In a similar way to the film Logan's Run, another clear influence for this, um, they had a lot of very casual dresses for normal folk. Say, There's a bunch of soft furnishings and chairs that, and endless corridors that always seem short, poilet, and have oppressive shh doors at the end of them. <laughs> Rooms and corridors are predominantly white, silver, grey. So often the only colour in the scene is from the costumes in some of those corridor scenes. This does give proceedings an oddly bleached, blank view of the future, which I think echoes a bit of THX 1138 in there, or maybe that echoes the other way around. It predates that. The interior spaceships that we see, as we see a prison transport ship in this at least, seeming a pretty casual affair with a whole load of chairs in some kind of locked room. Prior to this, we see Blake et al. in their holding cells, and it's just really kind of room full of beds. It's classic sort of prison cell type thing. They never really seem particularly well guarded in this. The guards just seem to be pissed off all the time, and that kind of does it for them. They just <laughs> shout at people all the time, get back there. And they just go, okay, yeah, we'll. <laughs> get off my lawn. So, get out, go on, get, it, get in there. It's just, they're just pissed off all the time. Angry, angry folk. Blake's trial is weird, as you've said, held in some kind of white room with a computer box and a light bulb on top that just decides stuff. Not a ton of thought goes into those locations, I don't think. The lighting, that's something different. Um, but it does mean you're focusing on the human tragedy. Um, and for me now, on the chairs, I won't go into the hairstyles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that. I'm leaving that out there. What about you? What did you? Mike, Mike, score for this, by the way. I actually gave the costumes and sets a cozy seven because I think they're actually they work quite well for Blake's, oh Blake's God, we've got a, in the context of a BBC drama. We've got what a about opinion here? It's 1970s BBC. It's probably filmed at some steelworks in Scunthorpe or somewhere. You know, Not wrong. That's what it is. It's the pilot episode. It's it's all very. It's I mean, I'm just going on the pilot episodes. It's all very. It's very close to the bone. In lots of interiors, sparkly outfits, and tunics. So many tunics. <laughs> so nothing, many tunics. That's no, and, and those dark sort of Gestapo uh, stormtrooper esque. Yeah, 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 they uh, are black, very black much out, so, yeah. black um black outfits for the sort of enemies. You know, the the, the uh, police, um, the Federation. Yeah, the Federation. The Dower. The Dower. I mean. I didn't think there was much of note in this in the sets or costumes. I think it's it's an attempt to do something, but it's a bad attempt. I think it, it in this pilot episode, everything just looks a bit, you know, it looks exactly what it is. And I don't think it's a, you know, it just doesn't feel like a futuristic sort of place where there's this federation, the Terran Federation have taken over, whatever. Um, I mean, there's an argument that Dower locations that mirror the themes of hopelessness and oppression. You could argue that, you know, which are pillars of the show. But, well argued. But, uh, but, you know, we all know they could have they made it look better if they could so i think you kind of you can argue something after the fact to go yes but they're trying to mirror the, the dour hopeless oppressiveness of the situation no they didn't they didn't have any money it's bbc in the 1970s you know this doesn't look anywhere different to a, a doctor who episode and and i think that's that's for me that's on this episode there's not much in the way i mean even that interior of the spaceship where they get blasted on for the end it's just a series of chairs it's just a row of chairs yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> it's like, it is just chairs what is it it's just a row of chairs except for except for rushes who's slightly higher up and he's got a window <laughs> yeah true, uh, true, so true. There's, there's bugger all in this i mean the, the, that bit where they go out to meet the um the outsiders in those those underground tunnels where it's just <laughs> oh good lord and when he, he's you know he steps up to do his speech he's just had a car crate 
Well, no, I gave this a four. I thought this. Was, I think this is probably Ooh. its weakest, weakest element. Okay, um, well, okay. Well, then we need to sort of meet, try and find a happy place in the middle between seven and four. So, do we go to yeah. five? Uh, we go to a five. I can sort of see your rationale for it. I think there's, like you say, I think it, if if they push the boat out, I think in terms of costumes, they do later. But we've got to go on the pilot. We've got to go about pilot, seeing yeah. the pilot. So I think in the pilot, yeah, I think no, they didn't raid, they didn't dig too deeply into the BBC costume department, did they? No. To get some of the stuff. I mean, that. it opens on that corridor where he's just walking along and sees that other one. Then they go into another corridor and they go down some steps and they're outside into more <laughs> corridors. And then that sequence where the Federation bigwigs are having a sit around sort of thing—it's just a pile of cushions. It, it you is. Know. Yes, it's, it's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, no way around that. What it is, is this? From yeah. you know, like you said, you've watched the rest of it, so you kind of coming at it from. I'm just coming at this from. I'm just watching it and going. No, no, I think I, no, I agree with cheap. you. I think if we go by just the pilot, you know, you have to look, think to yourself: Would you were, were you blown away by the costumes and sets? No. And, and in Blake Seven, I mean, I think they're good for what they are. But I, like I said, I I'm coming at this from a slightly different angle. But I agree. I think I think we can go down a peg to a so five. If we if we so I think we take it to a five. Yeah, take it to a five. Then I'm happy to do that because you know, I, perhaps I'm. Focusing a little bit on what I remember from all of the show, and yeah. let's just make sure. I mean, people like Avon's not even there with his studded boots and stuff. Yeah, well, you see, they all change outfits so often later like, down I mean, the but, line. Yeah. There's actually a special room in Liberator where they go and get changed. <laughs> there is, it really is. But we can only comment on the pilot. That's all we've yep, got in front so, of us. The evidence absolutely, in front of yeah, us. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. I agree. So I think yeah, let's take it down to a five. So okay. So and now, obviously, over to you with um, Space Nineteen Eighty Nine. All right, completely different type. Right off the bat, these costumes are ace. They're ace. The retro-futuristic space flares with a natty one-arm zip design for the tops. You know, what's not to love here? Um, there's much more of a solid style. You've frozen, by the way. I'm still here. Oh, you're still there? Okay. Um, yeah. There's not much more of a solid... There's Sorry, there's much more of a solid style to these outfits than what we see in Blake 7. Um, and they even come complete with a cool belt and handy door controller, which everyone carries around with them, which I kind of liked. Although you'd be buggered to get him around if you lost that. Um, so, you know, whatever. Um <laughs> The use of colours on the sleeves to denote rank and job is a great touch and lends the world of Space 1999 a solidity and authenticity I thought was lacking in Blake Seven's tunic-fueled nightmare. I also liked the uniformity of outfits for the pilot uh, for the pilot episode, where men and women have the same utilitarian outfits instead of the women being made to wear skirts, which happens as it goes on to happen in season two. Um, the outfits were created by the Austrian fashion designer Rudy Gemreich, who's a personal friend of series star Barbara Bain, um, who's a very well-known um uh, fashion designer of the period um and had very sort of strong views on sort of unilateral unisex kind of outfits and it shows here these are really cool they, they're just ace i think they're, they look good the sets have a similar quality to the outfits this is the future envisioned in the 70s so lots of clean sets white and austere and the way they made these as well they just had these sort of slots that they could just rearrange into different shapes for the different rooms so i thought that was all quite quite good and it works the range of sets is impressive um whether it's uh as well and the moon base and surrounding environment uh, works really good it's, it looks really great there's a really good sense of place to this yeah there's lots of flashing lights as we see in sci-fi at the time but the inclusion of things like docking bay hangers through windows that shot where he's talking to the uh the guy um who's sort of head of maintenance and in the background there's the uh the eagle being pulled across inside the docking bay. And there's loads of eagles in the background, which, by the way, is where they all come from. There's loads of them. You can see them all through the window. Um, it looks Everyone great. the eagles. Yeah, it looks, it looks really cool. It's like, you know, you don't see this in 1970s sci-fi, this sort of background detail. And reminded me of the sort of the hangar bays you see, see in Aliens and things like that later on. So I think it just makes it feel like a real place. It feels like there's there's a world outside the windows, which you don't often see in these kind of things. It stretches as well to the interiors of the various spaceships. 
and the lunar transport tunnels you know there's that purple thing and i know it's just a reverse shot i get it but it gives it a sense of like there's space here and there's movement and there's a bigger area than what we are fully shown this seems to be punching well above its weight for 1970s television well above its weight i mean it's, it's the most expensive tv show by far at this point whatever it is it clearly shows the you know everything's right up there on the screen um and there's no problem with any of that i gave this a nine i think this looks and looks looks great for the time this looks amazing i was well impressed with how this uh, looked um and it's it's as a cohesive whole sets itself up um and, and i thought it was really impressive and and also as well you know i mean we've not can we talk about the sets of the you know, the spaceships and stuff like that? Those eagles look great. So to me, this was a solid nine. What about you? Yeah, I agree. Same. I gave it a nine for similar reasons, actually. The, the, the outfits are amazing. I mean, the costumes in this are just brilliant. They actually get worse as the second season starts. Different, but this different designer point, at that point. Different designer came yeah, up. Yeah, well, a whole different ball game. That's why yeah. I say it's, it, is a pro, it is sadly a program of two complete separate seasons. But let's focus on the pilot. Amazing costumes. I love the insignia based on their sort of color of their sleeve, the zip up. You know, it's all, all it all blew me away at how brilliant and how close and the attention to detail was. I would expect no less from the from the mindset of Jerry Anderson because they obviously know about insignia and about precision and about all the details. They are masters of the detail. Yeah. yeah. Um, so everything in there is positioned and, and created in kind of the same way that they created all of the um, super animation puppet shows. You know that. Attention to detail is what makes them what they are. So like you say, all that stuff happening in the background, all of the, whenever anything launches, it's not just, you know, in the air, it's, there's a slow process of it lifting off onto a platform, the platform, and, and they, they think of everything like that. And that's what really, really set Space 1999 apart. It was both its blessing in terms of how much it cost and its curse because of how much it cost <laughs> yeah, um, to make the show. But I think like you, this the sets are amazing. They really hold their own. They don't, they all look the part. Even when they're on the moon and the, and, the, and and sort of different areas of the moon and they're looking through the windows and stuff, it's all key parts of it. It all really works. It gels together. You feel like they're on the moon mm. and you're watching them in there. And you, don't, you sort of forget about little technical inaccuracies, ground gravity and stuff like that. You know, they, we know they've just got anti-grav and stuff like that, fine. But it just looks the part. And I love their insignia and the way it all works and the way that they, the sort of the control system works and they all interoperate and talk to each other. And I think it's brilliant. Sets-wise, I really, really rate this show. What was that? It's one of its greatest strengths is it's is it's the way it looks. It's a, it's a real strength of Space 1999. That's what remains good-looking to this day. Beautifully vivid. So yeah, nine from me and all good hairstyles too in that. All good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for the time, there's nothing looks too out of place. It's just, yeah, just nothing crazy. Just, but, you know, apart from Kenny Everett, but the, the, the missing BG. But other than the that, missing everything kids. else is good. <laughs> Where yeah. are we going? <laughs> We're going. Ha 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 ha. You can tell by the way he, <laughs> where, yeah. where he dumps his waste. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a woman's man. He's a company man. <laughs> he is. Um, so okay well that was a resounding slap across the face wasn't it that was uh, Space 1999 just glove slapped Blake 7 and won yes outright there was no there was no point in a duel there um, you don't have to stand the two side by side you can see where the money went with Space 1999 you can see you know all the design and everything else yeah and there, there is a little bit I suppose of you know gr- grubby British TV series versus you know extensively financed sort of US-ish based sort of show I get that, but it is what it is, right? It is what it is. Nine wins. That's beating it nine to six. Nine, it? nine to five. five. Nine to five. Nine, working nine to five. What a way to, make, to live in. <laughs> what a okay, way well, to... that means that's Space 1999 pushing ahead. Massively pushing you know, ahead. Indeed. Indeed. 
Well, for our next little sojourn into uh, some interesting details about these shows, um, we're going to take a look at the uh, music and sound effects. And that means it's over to you, um, Mr. Mills, Adrian, as we like to call it, our dream, <laughs> um, to look at the music and sound effects of Blake Seven. Okay. Um, uh, all right. This, uh, what can you say about the music and sound effects in, in Blake Seven? Okay. Um, there's the main theme. So if we talk about the main theme, it was composed by Dudley Simpson. It is a good theme. It's okay. I quite like it. I'm not sure it really conjures up sci-fi and space travel and space adventures. If you compare it to, you know, Star Trek, that has a spacey sci-fi feel. This has, uh, there was a, some of this, it reminded me, um, very 70s BBC. It, it, I was trying to think what it was and it took me a little while, but it's not the same, but similar in tone and style to the Aneedin line. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do remember it. Yeah, yeah. And that's what this reminded yeah, yeah. me of. And, and and I wondered whether they were going for that because obviously the Oneidin line is about sailing and traveling and that. So I was wondering whether they were trying to sort of play on that. So this is more, you know, it's space, space travel. So it's travel. So whether they were, I think you're right. Whether they were going right, for though. that, I'm not entirely sure it works. So it's a good piece of music. I don't know if it fully works for Blake Seven. Um, yeah, because the Indian line was da 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 So it is. There is no doubt. There's some kind of influence there. I think. So I think there's a there's a similarity there, um, and maybe like I said, they were they were aiming for this kind of travel. I think later on this would be aped in the opening of the first two seasons of Red Dwarf. The slower version before it went all upbeat for season three, because um, that's yeah. that's quite that's got yeah. that sort of big epic style. But I think that they were, t- I think they were taking the piss out of this. I think that's what I think anyway. Beyond that, what is there? So there's some bleeps. There's some musical stabs every now and again. There's not much, is there? There's not much of an oral soundscape to Blake Seven. At least I didn't think so upon watching it and trying to listen to it. It's very muted. There's there's you know there's some weird stabs at some stuff when he's going through his sort of uh, treatment phases and things like that. I don't know. It's it's a bit empty. It's a bit low-key. Maybe it serves the on-screen visuals because to have pulled attention to the sound would have taken attention away from the... I don't know. It it kind of feels cohesive because it just feels low quality, like the like the looks and feel of it. It feels like a... It feels and sounds like a 1970s BBC show. I don't know. I don't know who was responsible for the actual in sound of it, whether it's Simpson again. There's a lot of echoing in the dialogue at times, especially when they're out, you know, on location. They've obviously just taken the sound from there. When they're in those outsider tunnels, it's a bit, you know, it feels a bit sort of cheap, which I think it is. So I don't know. It, it just felt like, well, the, the BBC shows at the time, I gave it a five. There wasn't much. I didn't really find much to sort of go on about or really find much to hook into with the music and sound effects for Blake Seven. What, what about you? Yeah, I think the the opening theme is an odd mishmash, isn't it? The opening theme of Blake Seven, because you've got that kind of initial sort of um, sort of theme, like you say, the sort of Indian line, sort of heavy-handed theme for Blake Seven. Then it goes, and you get the weird, you know, fanfare. It's really strange. It's a really strange piece. It's like you didn't quite know what to do. Then it goes, wow, wow. It's like someone leaned on the bloody synthesizer at the end of it. Oh shit, is that recording? Oh damn it. And so it's really weird. It's a mishmash of things, and I think that's what they're trying to convey. One part of that music is Blake. One part of that music is the Federation. One part is I'm not sure. Someone leaning on a synthesizer, going, oh bugger. Sorry, did that did that record? Um, <laughs> Maybe. So I quite like the theme, but like you say, in the actual show, it's very like Doctor Who. It's you know, it's sound effects that are linked to the you know background sounds and stuff like that. Lots of 
foot squeaks in the corridor, you know, we're walking like, <laughs> this, you know, the Clark shoes are really tear, tearing up the uh, lino of the future. Um, so, you know, space lino. Um, but um, like you say, there's not a lot to write home about, is there? The sound effects are very much, um, you know, there's a limited amount of folio sound effects, I'm guessing. Yeah. Certainly in this pilot. And the sound of the guns is stupid. Don't like the sound It's of very the muted, isn't it? It's very like a... Yeah. <laughs> But it reminds me, they remind me of the guns in Logan's Run, because the guns in Logan's Run are a bit like that. They sort of fire one shot and go, yeah, more like a, and maybe they're a bit borrowing from that. Later down the line, they use uh, what look like shower heads. Um, (laughs) So they do, well, actually more like hair curlers. Anyway, like you say, so I wasn't, I like the theme of Blake 7, but it is a bit confusing. Um, And so I gave it a five. Yeah, there we go. Um, Five on the money. So five for that. Okay. Um, well, then let me tell you a little bit about the music and sound effects of Space 1999. Do so. In complete contrast <laughs> to, and again, in complete contrast to Blake 7, Space 1999, the opening credits of the first series featured a dramatic fanfare composed by longtime Anderson associate Barry Gray, uh, and also featured some guitar and extra production from Vic Elms, whose scores for the series were his final compositions for the Anderson theme, the Anderson production team. But if you think Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, Joe 90, UFO, Stingray, Fireball XL5, that's Barry Gray. Mm-hmm. Now, if he wasn't famous enough for Thunderbirds, <laughs> right, just on its own, Thunderbirds are gold. Yep. Now, if you if you didn't get the idea that this guy could compose with that kind of thing, then there's this. Um, I don't think there's anyone else that ever composed like him. I don't think there's ever been another person that composes. They compose in a similar way, but there's only one Barry Gray. He died sadly in 1984. Um, but there is such a strong association of his music to these shows that you just simply cannot deny how great the music is for them. And this one is is no exception. It's characterized by massive use of bass, uh, brass and percussion sections. It made ex- it makes extensive use of light motifs, certainly in the terms of Thunderbirds, where each part's like its own theme. It, it deviates from that for his more for the UFO type stuff. And it goes for a more dramatic opening. So this one is actually very much like the opening of UFO. So if you watch that, you know, you get the, you know, uh, it flashes up 1980. This woman with silver tinsel hair. You get that kind of thing. Um, with Space 1989, you always get the sort of weird prologue where it show, you get the, you know, dun, 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 big dramatic, call, you know, opening, orchestral opening. And it descends into the funk. And the funk begins. It's funky. <laughs> so you get the dunk, do, do, dunk, do, do, dunk, do, do, dunk, the funky bass. This really crazy electric synth guitar, whatever the hell that is. It's amazing music for Space 99. It captures you instantly. And it helps that they sort of preview the episode in the first you know, 15, 20 yeah. seconds of the opening credits. Yeah, another thing so about you get, you know, all, all you see is just, yeah, it does. All you see is just explosions and people look reacting and explosions <laughs> and you're like, holy, holy crap, this looks amazing. You know, yep. then, then Space 1999, September 1999, and it's all amazing. Thumping, pulsing, driving background beats and percussion. A hypnotic style of bass. Doom, do, 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 do. And then over the top, you get this instrument. Modern techno could learn a lot and has clearly learned a lot from this kind of approach. This sort of stuff at this particular time, there's electric instruments and stuff thrown in there as well. But the opening sequence, the opening music, the opening gambit sets its stall out very clearly. And this is from an accomplished person. They knew exactly how to compose for this kind of show. And it shows here. This is, I think, like I said, one of the last ones they did for this. Um, there's a fascinating interview with Barry um, Gray on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes where he expresses how he found co- the composition of this kind of music pretty easy because he said he just had the music in him, quote unquote. 
And by the time Space 1999 came out, he was he, he said in his own words, he was pretty damn good at creating the audio drama. The music throughout the show is a great reflection of the level and expertise given to the production of the show. It is lavish when all said and done, with lots of suitably dramatic themes and sounds. How they occur, how they're used, is exactly how they're used in all of these super animation type shows. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> they're all used like that. So there isn't a lot of interstitial music. Often, oftentimes you find in these shows, the interstitial is the conversation. There's lots of um, people talking to each other about stuff. And then the sound comes at a dramatic turnaround at the end of that scene. And that's often how this is just, that's how this is composed. So the music is driven around drama of scene change, which is really unusual. It's a really strange thing. But I find the music for this is brilliant. It's good all the way through. It's really expensively produced. Um, so it's all, a, you know, a, like I said, it's a strong reflection of how much money had been spent with this show. Very suitably dramatic, really great themes and sounds. Um, more often than not, they're always using, like I said, an emphasis at the beginning and at the end of scenes, but it's used all the way through even. It's just drama, high drama all the time. The music pushes it along. Um, the sound effects of Space 1999, I would argue, prom- probably dominated by explosions. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. loads, of, loads of explosion sounds. Things taking off, lots of steam being jetted out of things and explosions, mm-hmm. generally speaking. So just things crashing, blowing up, exploding, landing on stuff, blowing up, exploding, lightning explosions, <laughs> atomic explosions, moon base explosions, blow things blow up a lot in this. Info panels, doors and such. They've all got a, new, a suitably nice audio soundscape, but at some point you're going to hear an explosion. <laughs> I think there's an explosion. It must be at least every third, three or four minutes in this show. Um, so I think the music is brilliant for this. It's just of, its, of such a high standard that it sets itself really, I like the costumes. There is no mistaking a Jerry Anderson costume and audio soundscape and visual soundscape. You cannot mistake it. And this is exceptionally good and really catchy. Uh, and as for the sound effects, well, if you like the sound of explosions, you're going <laughs> to dig it. Yeah, um, what did you think? I Actually, as a rating, by the way, I gave this a nine because I think it's exceptional. A nine, all right. Okay. <clears throat> funky, Junior. Real funky. <laughs> <laughs> it is funky. Uh, the main theme is 70s sci-fi by way of Jeff Wayne, isn't it? It's, but it predates Jeff Wayne. It's War of the Worlds. With yeah, yeah. Jeff Wayne with Barry Gray. It's amazing. It's a great tune and it sets the action mood. Again, though, I'm not really sure it screams futuristic sci-fi. That's my only issue with it. I think it's a great piece of music, but I just don't, I don't know, but maybe it's retro futuristic. So I kind of, you know, it's kind of a weird one, but there's no doubt in the quality of that piece of music and the way it's used. I was actually was watching it and wondering whether we needed a section on opening credits just on its own. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, but then again, this would have just dominated. (laughs) This would have just hammered Blake Seven into a pit, punched it. It'd have been like the lead pipe to Blake's face repeatedly. (laughs) 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 That's what this would have been. Because the opening section or something, like you said, things blow up, people react, although quite woodenly. (laughs) They don't react strongly enough. Things blowing up, things falling over, eagles going into the, you know, moon. It's just all over the place, but it's amazing. So, yeah, it's an incredible opening you know, barrage of, of, of tune. Um, and I actually like throughout it, there's not just the dun dun duns which are there, obviously. There's some weird sort of early electronic instrumentation for the incidental music as well at times. A much more of a sort of sci-fi feel, I thought, quite interesting. Just at certain moments, there's this kind of weird noises and stuff, which I quite like. Good sound effects, as you said, it is mostly explosions. If you like explosions, then, you know, this is going to give you a real, you know, explosion boner. And a more varied, I think, way more varied in quality. I, I gave it an eight. I'm happy to go to a nine, though. I think it's ace. It's a pretty cool. Okay, yeah, fab. It's a really good, you know, this is where this is winning out. This is the production values on Space 1999. You know, they're through the roof. <laughs> yeah they they are they really are and so they, they know they know exactly what they're doing yeah, yeah they do there you go okay well that's another so what did what did we score blake seven in five the end of that? 
five for Blake Seven, nine again for Space 1999. So not only have they been glove stopped now, they've just been kicked really hard in the balls, <laughs> like really hard, re- like winded hard. Repeatedly getting hit with a lead pipe. That's what's going on here. <laughs> We're, we're looking up a pixelated version of Blake's nose a lot, it seems to me. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Okay, well, let's move on to our next category then. And the next category is the visual slash cinematography. as Well, tele- teleography, cinematography, the way it looks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and, and that kind of thing, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so I'll dive into uh, initially into Blake 7. Mm-hmm. There isn't a whole bunch of visual effects in the pilot of Blake 7, not a whole bunch, at least, so I say, not in the pilot. Some models work for when the prison ship is taking, there's some model work, sorry, for when the prison ship is taking off and a couple of shots of it traveling in space. No real magic as to how that was done. The power of a chroma key compelled them. There's a great memo written by a frustrated <laughs> visual effects designer, Ian Scones. <laughs> On the 29th of March, 1978, which gives a long and painful insight into some of the insurmountable problems of the visual effects for this pilot and the series of Blake 7. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing. Principally, this was due, the insurmountable problems were due to there being too much for his team to do across too many areas with no money and time. This is going to shock you, by the way, this next fact. Initially, the visual effects were budgeted with just £50 per program. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> Which explains a lot. That does explain. Just hit me with the lead pipe again. <laughs> <laughs> now, remember, this is from, from from the guy that was asked to do the effects for this. And then what? The, so I felt, I felt when, upon reading his, in his memo that he wrote at the time, I felt really sorry for them. They really want, they all of them really wanted this to be a showcase of visual effects, but with no money, no time, because the timelines were ridiculous, some ridiculous demands, pressure, and a production team with no clue about how to make a sci-fi show like this, um, you end up with what you end up with. There were also loads of script rewrites, loads of script delays, visual ideas that were ripped out of the production simply because of the amount of finance it would have cost. It was a real mess in production. Um, in fact, Ian, who Ian Schoons, say the the chap who wrote it states. Personally, and this is a quote, I have never been so frustrated on any program made by the BBC by the corner cutting and lack of sympathy in the effects area in order to get the program out on time. Mm. So pretty scathing. And that's from the people that actually did it. So worrying, really. So (laughs) there's an entire postmortem which you can look at in terms of how the visual effects are and everything else in terms of the visuals. But it was basically models, and that was the best they could do, and it was shot on a budget. So the model parts, at least, you can imagine what they ended up with, which is not far off the first, you know, when you look at things like um, Doctor Who and stuff, you sort of get the idea of where the... They didn't do a lot of external spaceship shots, actually, in Doctor Who, did they? So they were trying to do sort of external spaceships. It doesn't look good. No. And it and it doesn't look good, you know, in spite of the design of some of the ships later, anyway. Everything was recorded onto videotape in the studio and usually film on location as the st- as the standard way at the time mm. for shows on the BBC. Um, unfortunately, gone are the crisp colours of film and expensive cameras, instead replaced with the fudgy blur of video cameras and the sweeping movements of studio shooting. Add to that, fairly staged performances in terms of market and placement and with the greater proportion of the lighting either bright or dim, depending on whether you're inside a room or outside in a bunker. So outside bright white, uh, sorry, in a room, bright white generally, or bright silver white. Outside in a bunker, dark grey or brown. Actually, colour choices. On a spaceship, there tends to be silver and greys. There's a lot of three-point lighting and studio set up. Obviously, it's shot in a studio. 
which is understandable. But on occasion, there are moments where the lighting, which was done by a chap called Brian Clement and his team, um, Clement, sorry, and his team, really works for the drama. There's some actually, if you occasionally in some scenes, some really clever use of key lights and some filters to really emphasize things. Every now and again, the guy was directing it and the lighting guy just like, let's just, just slip this kind of arty shot in. So there's one in particular where the guy's silhouetted in a doorway. It opens up on his wife who's asleep at the forefront of the camera. She's lit by one light. Mm. Um, so it's given her face a glow. She's really large in the frame. He's silhouetted. It's nicely done. Shots like that are very few and far between. It falls between that and some generally some sort of lighting effects um, that are used to sort of illuminate walls or sometimes the drama, as it were. So there's lots of, dower lighting um, and things like that. So there is, like I said, clever use of key lights and filters. And every now and again, you'll get a nice shot in there. But no, they're they're clearly, as has been explained by the effects guys, they're pushed for time. And so no, they're not going to spend a lot of time doing that. Now, there's an entire, um, again, if you go to the Watching Blake 7 amazing blog, there's an entire strand of articles about lighting of Blake 7. It's quite quite in-depth. It's amazing. And they argue that there's some really nice use of light and shade, and it's mostly up against the walls, which breaks up the space of the corridors. It's even the odd bit of geometry, and it's sort of quite well lit considering the restraints they were under, with quite a large crew, actually, that work both the visuals and the studio work. So generally speaking, there's, you know, there's an in- there is indeed quite a lot of thought uh, apparently goes into it. I just don't think it comes out of the screen. It doesn't shout lots of thought about the colour. No. It just shouts, you know, for Christ's sake, get the people in there, get it over with and, sh- and get them to the next scene. So I f- think that... Get it over with, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. I suppose what you, ca- what you can argue with is that at least the lighting and the visuals are consistent. Considering this was shot in multiple locations, it all looks kind of drab and dreary and grey <laughs> and, and bleak. Yeah. So they've got that right. And there's even a website um, devoted to the colours of Blake 7 in terms of the c- different colour screens and someone's taken the time, believe it or not, to take screen grabs and pixelate them and then look at the series of results they got throughout the whole of the series to capture the feeling and colour schemes of Blake 7. And what they discovered was that they were dull, muted and bleak. Um, so, <laughs> which I could, you could have just told them. So there's not a lot more to say about the visuals and cinematography um, in Blake 7. In this particular pilot, um, most of it is pretty dark. Um, when he's in the cave, having you know, goes, when he goes off for a think, it's all pretty dark. He hides in the dark. They appear in their golf buggies reasonably in the dark. The shooting happens in the dark. The light part is then when they're in the set. Even that is kind of illuminated but dark. Weirdly, they go to talk to a guy who's in control of um, all of the computer information about prisoners and the things. Mm. And he's in some kind of dark room just listening to his bloody Walkman. It's really random. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, sort of funking out. Hey, he's like, oh, you disturbed me listening to my bloody Walkman. It reminded me, that reminded me of the, I don't know if you remember uh, that sequence in... Um, uh, minority Report, where he goes to talk to the guy where they're all <laughs> locked up when he wants to see the memories. <laughs> very, very similar scene. Similar, yeah. Don't doubt that there's maybe an influence. You don't know, dear. But in terms of its visual slash cinematography, Blake 7 is a BBC drama to its core. Mm-hmm. And so if you took away the Blake 7 and just and substituted a few random sequences from an episode or two of Doctor Who, I don't think you would actually necessarily <laughs> really be able to tell the difference. Um, so I gave it a not so stunning five because it's right down the middle for me. Okay. What about you? Well, my, my score rhymes with score and core. Um, <laughs> so it's one below yeah. you. It's very flat in it. It's just, there are, like you said, there are some yeah. attempts to spice things up. I mean, there's 
it's not great, but the way that Blake's treatment shots in the tube at least try and do something different. Because at least it's, you know, it's in darkness, it kind of zooms into him and tracks into him. So there's some movement and there's some attempt to give it some sort of life. That shot, like you said, with the with the wife and the dog, but it's all, oh, and the, you know, all right, there's some attempts to create the feeling of a wider world. I mean, he, look, he does look out the spaceship window and there is a shot of the planet receding in the distance. Okay, fair enough. They're attempted something and this, you know, it is what it is. But it's just a bit naff and very BBC. It's very hard to get excited here. That's opening sequence. I mean, the problem is with the cinematography and the way it's all blocked out is that it's so obvious in that opening sequence that he's not surprised to see her around the corner. <laughs> you know, yeah, Because that's, that's where it worked <laughs> to this point. Look left, see her. It's like, oh, okay. Um, and so that's what I mean. That's yeah, the problem yeah. with this is that it's all... There's a nice shot, um, I think, when Dev comes down... Uh, the stairs and sees them in the background going out the door outside and it's kind of the the stair the stairs yeah. is kind of silhouetted because it's darkness where he is yeah. and you kind of looking so into every like every now and again there's just, some moments like go. that where there's sort of some you know depth in the fit in the screen and stuff like that but a lot of it is just like that sequence in the um whatever it is that room where the federation members are discussing what to do with him it's just terrible it's just really badly shot from a, just even a conversation point of view because of the way it's laid out, just slouching about and walking. It's just not very good. Um, so I gave it a four. I'm happy to bump it up to a five, but I can't give it more than that. Where do you where do you sit? I think go down. I can. Well, we, I think we could. I mean, it's not going to make a difference now, is it? Let's give let's give it a five just for those moments when they do try. Yeah, there's the occasional little bit in there, and also um, something that I I didn't allude to really, but something that is worth thinking about in the back of your mind is how difficult. It is to control all those lights from a inner studio. Oh yeah, yeah. Because those like that those light setups are not geared for sci-fi. They're geared for talk shows. They're geared for cookery shows. They're not geared to illuminate the set of a science fiction show. So to try and control from a TV control room, no less. Because remember, yeah. these are shot in standard TV studios where they shoot. No, next door they'll be shooting the Generation Game. Yeah, it's always a big thing with me so, with those seventies BBC shows where the the quality of the film stock just changes when they go outside. It always bugs the crap out. Well, it will do, yeah, because it it goes from film to film to video, but just um, and it does with this, doesn't it? And so, what it does is it breaks up that sense of that continuity, that sense of cohesiveness. Like, oh, okay, we're outside now. Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. But I think just in the back of our minds, remember that creating you know complex science fiction led lighting using enormously heavy bright light bulbs is a difficult proposition, (laughs) but I think still. Still, is what it is. I think the five. But what about um, what about the exciting world of Space Ninety Ninety Nine? Well, what does that I mean, like? This costs a lot of money, doesn't it? So when it comes to the visual special visual effects and stuff for Space Ninety Nine Nine, even today these look pretty good. There's some moments in this. I was like, like I said, <laughs> do, yeah. like I said, that th- those models stuff. But there's some very clever stuff going on with this. The, that, that shot where they're having the conversation in front of the window and the eagle is being transported in the back in front of loads of other eagles going off into the distance. I sat there going, "That's ace. That was that looks just like." The, in front yeah. of a you know a hangar bay looks really good. Like to have that kind of solidity and depth, and just think like, oh, let's put that in the background. Okay, <laughs> it's just clever stuff. I mean, this was completed. Um, I got a lot of this from the Wikipedia stuff on it, but it was complete because you're just doing your research on it. Uh, they used a mixture of full-size props, photographic blow-ups, and miniatures, and they're all used excellently. To, and it, 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 this this world feels solid. If there's one thing about Space 1999, is that everything feels solid and like you said that comes from their years of production on um all those terry all those you know terry nation uh thunderbirds joe 90 captain scarlet there's a solidity here there's a cohesiveness to everything about this so the way it's all shot like i said it's all it's all the same film stock for god's sake thank god the effects look part of the whole nothing looks different and so according to the wiki on this the program special effects director is brian johnson 
he'd previously worked on Thunderbirds uh, in 2001. So, you know, you've got a pedigree here. And, and rather than relying on expensive and time-consuming blue screen process, Johnson's team often employed a technique that went back to the earliest days of visual effects. Spacecraft, planets, spacecraft and planets would be filmed against black backgrounds with the camera being rewound for each successive element. So that's how they did it. So there's no blue screening. So they, as long as they didn't no. overlap, as long as the various elements didn't overlap, it produced convincing results because they were on the same, they were shot on the same thing. Yeah. So clever, proper composition. Yeah, clever, clever use of stuff. Um, Johnson and his team went on to work on Ridley Scott's Alien and Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it shows yeah, as well. Yeah, it does. So the level of talent here is clear. This looks way beyond most shows of the time. Things you look at in the seventies now, and I was started watching this in my mind. You're thinking, oh, Space Night, Night, it's going to look a bit ropey. No, it doesn't. This this pilot, like I was like from the opening sequence all the way through i was like this looks great this looks really good the style is amazing everything's great to photograph this frank watts uh was a cinematographer he'd worked on loads of shows before he's a you know this was a, a guy who'd worked in lots of film uh film television so randall hopkirk deceased champions the avengers this is a guy with a broad portfolio of work behind him so he knows coming onto the show he's like yeah we'll get this shot obviously clearly knows what he's doing it's well shot it's well staged it doesn't feel as blocked out as like seven does it feels a lot more natural in the way it's filmed and in the way people act and you know move about the sets are excellent i've noticed before the visuals he had to play with work as well as he did there's not much to complain about here it's perhaps a little overlit in places it's very bright um but you know that is what it is they're on a moon base and why would it be dark um, so you could you could argue like no we want it to be bright um and then uh, yeah but it is but so there's not a lot of depth in sort of um lighting within the actual uh, interior shots but we do have things like tracking shots composite shots with the main actors in places and it's all very you know it's excellent this works uh, i give this an eight um overall i think this is really good Re- really very very well done M- maybe even a nine uh, if you've given it a nine but got an eight from me what, what about you i think it, the visually compelling you know the sort of the space that it occupies is amazing yeah it looks so bright and vibrant and colorful there's a beautiful shades of sci-fi colors in there as well. The tonalities in there are amazing. It's such photographed so well. All the people are lit perfectly. They all look and makeup and everything else that comes together for them. Visually, it's just it's just rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can see how lavish the production was for this. And it shows, you know, and like you said, when it comes to the sort of visuals and this and they're just they're just mind-blowing. The cinematography, it is shot. Um I think it's they obviously had a bit of money and they were going to bloody well use it. So you know, there's a, there is a lot of quite wide shots for this. There's lots of people in those shots. There's lots of movement. Mm. This, the whole thing about the space, space 1999, which is very different to the way Blake 7 is. Blake 7 feels like the camera's locked and lots of stuff happens because people move and talk to each other and the depth is created by characters. In Space 1999, there's so much going on all the time that oftentimes the, the focus of the conversation uh, might be just a guy sat in a chair looking at a screen and and have you noticed, by the way, that when they do have that, and again, this, that's something that this is amazing for, that they'll click on a screen and talk to somebody and they'll, they'll be on the little TV screens yeah. and stuff like that. He also has the most, she also has the most pointless small miniature screen as well when he's outside the door as well at one point, which made me laugh quite a lot. Well, <laughs> I noticed that they all, obviously these quite new technologies because they all look a bit surprised when they answer. They're all like, oh God, hello. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> the woman. She doesn't blink, she's like, just rotates. True. Hello. Well, I think that, you know, all, all this is from a fact that this was nearly two years in the pr- in the production. I mean, that's, that's yes, a long time for yes. to, for a show of this ilk at that point i think and and created by people that knew exactly what they wanted to see visually when it was going to be out there and obviously on film so they knew exactly how to light this it was always going to be better looking than video i mean there's no way it was ever going to look and, and if you stand the two side by side it's they're not really it's not a fair comparison it's almost like comparing a film <laughs> 
to a TV version of it. <laughs> and yet that's you know, exactly just, what we've done. <laughs> and that's exactly what we've had to do. Well, you know what? I gave it a nine um, because I think it's it's so rich visually. It's just beautiful to look at. And it doesn't feel, as much as they're wooden actors a little bit, it doesn't feel like a Thunderbird set with real people in it. It feels like a set of actors in a, in a stage, yeah, yeah. you know, and on a set. Um, and it all comes together really well because there's such variety. It could have so easily just looked like puppet people. It could have done that, but it doesn't. It's just, it's so amazingly rich visually. Um, so much shot reverse shot in Blake 7 and so much sort of, you know, lots of people crammed in some small spots. They're always talking to each other in really confined spaces in Blake 7. It's like, we're going to have a conversation. Yeah, let's climb into this cupboard. Um, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of that, you know, whereas at least, you know, they've got a bit of space to maneuver and breathe. They talk to each other over communicators and things and yeah. stuff like that. And, they always refer to each other in the space 1999. They're all about the names, aren't they? Bring so and so and so and so with you know. They, 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 it's, it's, it feels like a coherent crew. Blake Seven's a little bit scrappier than yeah. that. Maybe that's part of the part of its you know its its charm. But no, I gave it a, a nine. I think it's it, again. It's not really a fair comparison, is it? But at the same time, we are. It is what we're doing. And for this pilot, space 1999 looks stunning. Yeah. Yes, it does. Nine. Good stuff. So what's the what's the overall then? I'll give that a nine. I'm happy to go to a nine. Okay. Well, that's another nine for... Um, the Space 1999. Space 1999. Well, that's all three nines. nines three nines, yeah. It's all the nines. Well, it's, it's, it's no wonder, really. Okay, well... Let's move to our final um, category then, really, which is down to the reception and influence that these shows may or may not have had. Um, and that leaves uh, you, uh, Adrien, to talk <laughs> about the influence reception of Blake's Seven. Okay. Um, I think at the time it was, it kind of got a mixed bag. I think a lot of people, it was obviously popular with its audience, 10 million people watching it. Um, there were some critics that liked it, some that didn't. I think it was just generally sort of seen as what it was. But as time has gone on, I think this has become more of a well-regarded show by those in the business. I think it's. I think some of its thematics. It's. It's easy to see why you can see elements. Uh, certainly, you can see Firefly and Serenity um, in this because Ser- Firefly and Serenity are almost the same show. <laughs> when I when I started watching this, not knowing much about Blake Seven, and I was like, this seems very similar to Firefly. You know, he was head of a resistance that got tried to. You know, and the out of worlds and things. That's just Firefly. But uh, so. I think, you know, its its legacy holds true for things like that. But then again, Blake Seven was pitched as the Magnificent Seven in space um, originally. So, you know, those themes and tropes go back even further. So this was pulling on recognized. This wasn't your typical space Star Trek thing. This was doing something different of trying to transplant a more uh, uh, sort of recognized and sort of uh, thematic um, story and situation into a different premise. And so that's quite interesting. One thing it is praiseful, though, is its lack of a clear uh, good versus evil storyline. Um, so there's a there's not obviously clear and um, obvious baddies in this, and the crew of as you've noted, the crew um, of uh, what's the the Liberator? Is it the Liberator? The spaceship? Liberator the, Liberator, is the, the first the crew, ship. Yeah. The, yeah, the crew of the Liberator sort of thing. They're not your typical all you know. They're not all great. They're not all good. They're all out for their own interest. They're thieves and you know whatever characters are anti heroes for the most part, and that's a rare thing back then. So this is not your Doctor Who is the time time traveling although he was a bit but he was an alien these are humans and so because they have ulterior motives and they're out for themselves it's a bit it was a little bit different so i think that usually um so that sort of drives it to be more feels more forward thinking than what was coming out at the time so that's quite interesting it usually scores high in favorite science fiction shows um list with critics and i think it's those themes of the show that carry it through there's a good quote on, on wikipedia from robert hanks who wrote in the independent in 1998 
and he compared the series ethos to that of Star Trek and wrote, if you wanted to sum up the relative position of Britain and America, Britain and America in this century, the ebbing away of the pink areas of the map, the fading of national self-confidence as Uncle Sam proceeded to colonize the globe with fizzy drinks in Hollywood, you could do it like this. They had Star Trek. We had Blake 7. No boldly going here. Instead, we got the boot stamping on a human face with George Orwell offered as a vision of humanity's future in 1984. Um, Hanks concluded that Blake 7 has acquired a credibility and population, popularity, sorry, Terry Nation can never have expected. I think it's to do with the sheer crappiness of the series and the crappiness it attributes to the universe. It's science fiction for the disillusioned and ironic, and that is what makes it so very British. So I think it's quite good. In a way, it's that crappy sci-fi, that sci-fi of the everyman, envisioned at the time in films like John Carpenter's Dark Star, Ridley Scott's Alien, which is about, you know, it's not about space battles and it's not about that. It's about mm. people working in shit sci-fi yeah. <laughs> situations. Yeah. And that's maybe the show's biggest legacy and contribution. It was part of that. It was part of that movement to sort of show something different. This isn't shiny sci-fi. This is grubby and a bit rubbish. And as time has gone, it seems quite apt for where we are right now. I, you know, I think there's a, this has become, you know, a more, as we look back on it, this was a step towards that, representation of, of dystopic science fiction i mean we had it in things but even in things like quatermass and stuff it was still the hero can do this but in this it's like there is no real heroes they're just people trying to sort of survive and i think that's been something that you would see i mean carpenter's like the thing um that sort of that sci-fi of like it ain't pretty it ain't great and so i gave this an eight because i think it's been quite it was, it was part of a thing that was happening at that time and despite its low budget values as we said at the very start its thematics its story its overall concept are the reason that this has stuck in the consciousness where so many other science fiction shows have not so that's what i thought what about you yeah i i agree actually i think there is a, there is a bleakness and a dystopian overtone to blake 7 which pervades the series throughout all four seasons it's a strange it, it's sort of a strange show that it made a sort of a weird half comeback, as it were. It was always kind of in and out of popularity. There's all sorts of strange things that happen as you work through. Obviously, you know, they, they encountered the Liberator. There's some interesting characters like the computer thing, Orac, that comes into it later. Mm. Um, there's obviously, you know, you get the arch villains of the piece. It falls into an in and out of a more traditional sci-fi purview because you get the big villain Servalan and you get the sort of the arch enemy of Blake, which is a, I can't remember the name of the name of the chap now. He's got like a patch over his eye, but I can't remember his name. Oof. But you get you get those um who's chasing Blake down. And then of course Blake disappears for a significant percentage of Blake Seven. And it's more about sort of Avon and stuff. The Liberator is destroyed in the first season, I think, or the beginning of the second season. Um, and they end up, you know, in all sorts of different situations. And and, it, and it's quite innovative in its space there are things in it that's easy to forget because they're not in the pilot the pilot itself is not it's actually not a great start to what the series would become um the idea of there being a giant computer you can talk to and a big screen and the liberator in it figuring stuff out and there's just some nice touches to it there's lots of little hints and bits of it that appear in other sci-fi shows throughout the especially bbc ones later down the line and obviously it always feels like it was a bit of a second almost round to anything doctor who was producing or anything who there's mm. always been talk of remakes and stuff like that of blake seven i don't know that they're gonna, ever going to happen i think because at a certain point you're going to get to the end of blake seven and at the end of blake seven it's all very bleak very bleak indeed um mm. again i'm not going to spoil it for people that may not have seen it um, but it doesn't end well for everybody <laughs> at all so as the pilot goes i think you're right i think it starts the, it's it is of a certain type of british dystopian sci-fi it's very influenced by the you know the day of the triffids type idea the 
um, mm. crater mass type approach. There's a, there's a lots of that in it, and because it has those things in it, this gritty British determination to just and and there is that kind of you know there is all post war. There's a bit of post war logic in there as well. Oftentimes you find it plays out in this. You know, there's a percentage of people being subjugated by some you know totalitarian state. You know, and it, it, a bit of the histrionics of the not of the time, but of the you know, of the the wounds of all of that stuff plays out in sci-fi and things like that. And I think there's a little bit of that and other conflicts and things as well. And a bad time in Britain. This is reflective of a the, the winter of discontent and misery that was going on in the country at the time. And like you said, mm-hmm. strangely prophetic, actually. So I think it's reception. It's obviously become a cult hit. And of the stars of it have become cult, you know, cult people to speak to. They go do conferences. It has a massive cult following, as these shows tend to do. I think because the mm-hmm. you know, Brit- British people do love a good also ran and they love an underdog and Blake seven is nothing if not an understudy of Doctor Who. And I think that's why people like it because it has that kind of gritty, gritty British you know, determinism to sort of, you know, make good on the story no matter what. And the story of Blake seven does become very compelling and interesting. And it is very different to the kind of Doctor Who episodic. There's going to be a hero and things are going to work out great. You know, and I think in, sort of 10 or 15 episodes, I forget you know, whichever episode it is in Blake 7, Orak predicts the destruction of the Liberator and you see it happen and it plays out and they all know that's going to happen. It's, you know, it's a doomed future. It's quite interesting and there's lots of stuff that plays out like that, albeit that there is a lot of running around with hair curlers. Um, so <laughs> I quite like it. They also, by the way, in Blake 7, something that's often overlooked, you won't see it in the pilot, but later on, they do beam down to the surface of planets as well, um, which is a very useful thing that they can do. So... That's quite nice that they do that. So I gave this an eight for its yeah. reception influence. So Same here. I think so an eight eights across the board. Now for Space nineteen ninety nine and the reception influence of that, the initial reception of Space nineteen ninety nine was mixed. Uh, some critics cited wooden performances from key actors. No shit. Others didn't warm to the quasi Star Trek Stanley Kubrick aesthetic. Even Isaac Asimov criticised the show. Believe it or not, for its. Mm. Poor scientific accuracy, um, pointing out that any explosion capable of knocking the moon out of its orbit would actually blow it apart. And even if it did leave orbit, it would take hundreds of thousands of years to reach the nearest star. Not like Isaac Asimov to come along and ruin it for you, is there? For all the people to do that. <laughs> Bloody Asimov. <laughs> this did prompt the cast to wonder why other sci-fi shows were afforded more suspension of disbelief. One of my favourite things I've read about it. Like, hang on a minute. Just a sci-fi show. I feel like there. I think... I don't quite know why it garnered that kind of reaction. It's very strange, but it did. Um, because it was basically a spin-off of UFO. And UFO didn't get that kind of reaction. In fact, no other Jerry Anderson series got as much double-edged sword treatment as Space 1999 did. Mm. Um, it's really strange. So people, I think because the characters don't react a lot, I don't think it gave many visual cues for people to really warm to the characters. The characters aren't really, you know, you're not going to buy figurines of these figures, you know, figures of this or toys of these things and play with them because what would you do with them? They don't do a lot in the show. They're just kind of standing around and, re- and just sort of, you know, react I had and a, I had don't figure stuff out. I, had, I I've still had got mine. I still got it. I've still got my original Eagle toy with the drop down cargo bit. Yeah, in the middle exactly. And yeah. So I've got it all. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of the toys and things like the, the spaceship parts of this are just mind blowing. And that, that did have a strong uh, influence on less so on British sci-fi, but as you've said, the people who worked on this went on to work on Empire Strikes Back, and you know you know where it's going to go when you see the level of production. That idea that they're going to shoot visual effects in that—I mean, that's a, that's still a modern way of doing it, of having layers of things composited together into one frame. That's still how they do it now, be it digitally. So mm. that you can see that they're, they're they're fine-tuning the art of special effects, and of course. 
you're not far off from this and you've got Battlestar Galactica on TV and things like that. So you can see how the direction it was going to head. If you pump the money in visually and spaceships wise and models wise and use models effectively and use the right, you know, illumination, you're going to get some really nice visual effects and it really works here. So that is one of its legacies is that Space 99 falls into a really nice part of the timeline of visual effects for, you know, for sci-fi yeah, shows. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. But has what's been proven to be the case with so many of these shows, Book Rogers, Battlestar Galactica, et cetera, et cetera, the director, producer, production differences, the poor syndicated sales, and some issues with ratings come to haunt the show for the second season. So we're, and in this case, again, a wholesale change in plot and story and temperament and casting would see significant issues arise in season two, and then it got cancelled for season three, mm-hmm. which is sad because they just didn't, didn't seem to be able to cope with the premise that they were presented with. And so they had to make it more about sort of, and I think if you think about it, really, where can you go with it? You're all trapped on a moon flying through space. And, you know, unless you're going to happen upon things, you know, it's just difficult to really, you know, that amazing beginning is like, well, where are you going to take it? And so they try to take it in a more Star Trek-y encountering aliens and that kind of direction and there's some really weird episodes of space 1999 really strange as this especially in season two it some of them are really off the chart weird um and so i'd recommend that you go and check out say i'm not going to go through every episode for uh, and dictate some of the strangeness but there really are some strange episodes but then the same can be said of star trek there's some really Mm -hmm. weird episodes of star trek and that that's the kind of route they went with it and so it inevitably led to its a lack of fade in its popularity at this time and when it came out I don't know that it was well syndicated in the UK. I'm not sure when it was shown in the UK. I remember seeing it, I think, in a, it might have been in a, I think, evening originally. I think that that six o'clock-ish should, slot. I seem to remember a Saturday evening. And then, yeah, to, and then maybe wrong. it was on, I don't know. I can't remember, but I never saw all of this, the episodes. It might have been Saturday morning even. But you never, like, like is always the case with these syndicated shows of this type i don't know if they even bought the entire series you tended to see about nine episodes and done um it was just you know that's the kind of way it rolled back then but as with almost every jerry anderson production the program endured and and endures to this day no matter what the critics thought the lavish and expensive production was not lost on a significant target audience and as much as the themes and the tropes and everything else were still a little bit above your average 10 year old's ability level to sort of fully comprehend you know galactic magnetic radiation being what it is and interstellar travel and all that as long as you've got lots of explosions and there were then mm-hmm. you know we were all good and you've got spaceships which you can zoom around hold in your hand and zoom around as a toy were golden there is a lot of smell the fire acting in this show though lots of it <laughs> um, you know that's the predominant you know with all the tech and themes and everything else their lack of reaction to their environment i think is one of the biggest problems of the show and i think that's what it's famous for you know they don't react a lot they leave a lot to the visual explosion. So they have to rely on that. So that's why it's got so many explosions and spaceships and things in it, because, you know, the people in it are like, well, look, they're generally looking at something on a big screen, like you're watching it on a big screen, right? And so remember what you've got with Space 1999, it's the recipe that it has. Bright, vibrant colors and a crazy sort of sci-fi premise that throws sci- physics and other things to the wind. Yes, the actors are wooden, but they're really well lit, dressed. It looks the part and it sounds amazing. That is the recipe for a cult hit right there. So you know that later down the line, um, there's going to be a lot of fans for it. And of course there is. There's still a lot of fans for Space 1999. It is still loved. It's still out there. There's documentaries about it. There's a whole ton of stuff. You can still get the designs and models of the Eagle spacecraft. It remains a massive favorite amongst TV sci-fi show fans. And if you think Mm -hmm. back, at least one person you knew must have had the metal diecast model of Space 1999 Eagle. At least one person. I mean, I did. So you know one person. I did. And you just, that's two. (laughs) 
In the case of me, I had that and I have uh, and still own a Blake 7 Liberator model, which I'm quite pleased, a small one, a very small mm. die model. So quite interesting. And they went on many adventures in my bedroom, dealing with all my Star Wars figures as well at the time. You know, an entire strand of, you know, of <laughs> stories crossing, the, crossing, crossing streams. Crossing the streams, like, man. Luke Skywalker flying on top of, a, of an eagle. Amazing. So yeah, that's really, there was a, oddly, a, so it was two full seasons, that cancelled for the third. And that was down to Lou Grade, who ran the show at this point. He decided to, fund other projects one of which believe it or not was raise the titanic and which you remember the famous quote for raise the titanic was it would have been cheaper to lower the atlantic (laughs) um now in on the 29th of august 1999 um there was a fan-made mini produced mini episode called message from moonbase alpha which had some involvement of some of the space 1999 people back from then so johnny byrne who was one of the writers penned the script it was filmed inside a private house, which had a working replica of the Moonbase Alpha's technical section and utilized some of the original props. It's out there on YouTube, I think, so you can go and watch that. It was shown as a kind of a one-off thing. I think just to try and light the fire a bit. It used some of the previously unused footage, a few short excerpts from other things. Didn't really go anywhere. I think it was seven minutes long. Had a couple of people from the original show. It was just trying to relight the fire a little bit, trying to, sort of, you know, we're still out there on Moonbase Alpha, still flying away. And then, um, obviously, modified versions of the Message of Moonbase are still available now. You can find them out there. The show was literally broadcast in, in, in every country you can think of. Um, so, you know, it, right the way through Argentina, Uruguay, every country you can think of, Space 99 had an appearance in some, some way or other. On August the 12th, uh, 2019, uh, Anderson Entertainment announced that they would collaborate with Big Finish to create an audio drama reboot of Space 1999, starring Mark Bonner, or Bonner, as John Koenig. And Matt and Maria Creasy as uh, Dr. Helena Russell. They, in fact, did release that. The, that story as, a, as an audio version was released on September 2019. And then they also revealed that they were going to do an additional box set of audio, which was another three recordings, which were released in July 2020, or at least it was announced on July 2020. I don't know if they're, st- I don't know if they're out there. I'm assuming they are. So it still enjoys, in, as often these things do, in different formats. Mm. You know, Doctor Who did a bit of that. It sort of, it, it dived into the fiction and books and some audio recordings during its hiatus at blake seven if you look there's probably loads of blake seven novels in there you know where you know blake's having his you know feet massaged by the <laughs> the good good vents or whatever then there's just that sort of you know there is that and then space 1999 has it as well it's the sign of a cult hit isn't it i think the reception of the influence of space 99 is probably not as not as influential as other sci-fi shows have been because it looks like a lot of the others certainly no star trek but in terms of its visual screen real estate i think it definitely stands as a landmark and of course it's a it's a cult hit because it's wacky something from you know yesteryear with crazy stuff going on and an amazing soundtrack so of course it's going to have a cult following it seems to be path the course if the internet gave us nothing it gave us the ability to you know collect with like-minded people and form random associations around things like space 1999 and such so of course there's a cult following as for reception influence score i gave it a eight okay about you yeah i think i'm not not too far from where you are i think this is less thematically resonant than blake seven was and more production resonant because for me i think this as you rightly said this because obviously star trek had, had gone off when did Star Trek end? It was like early 70s, late 60s, 69 or something like that, was it? So there was a gap in the market for this sort of big big budget production sci-fi TV weekly special thing that was kind of, I don't think there was anything else at the time that was really doing it, was there? I don't I don't sort of recall anything. This was 1970, mm, you know, no, 75, 76. Not really. 
So there wasn't much doing it. So this there was a space in the market for it. And this show, yeah, Star Trek sort of finished in '69, didn't it? So yeah, that's what I mean. So it, that had gone off. There had been a bit of a hiatus. So we got this, and I think this was the next step along. And it, and and I think its main, primarily main influence was that you can have a decent budget weekly sci-fi show that didn't look mm. like dog egg. Um, yeah. That a lot of them did. That were cheap and you know looked artificial and looked rubbish and ideas way beyond what they could produce. And this actually went, no, you can do it. It takes some money, and you can do it. And I think that's where this is because I mean. Like I said, this is essentially Battlestar Galactica. It is a group of people blasted out into space and having to survive. Battlestar Galactica is a group of people on a Battlestar blasted into space and having to survive. Years down the line, I don't know if you ever watched Stargate Universe. No, if you I watched that. see a lot of those. That was too, well. It was a spin-off from the main Stargate, and there was two seasons of Stargate Universe, which had Robert Carlyle as this scientist. And essentially, what it is that there, there was this group of people that they found this alien ship, uh, or they found this transporter. That was it. They found this sort of you know this, the Stargates. So they found this one, and then there was a big. There was a on this planet, and there was a sort of uh, uh, an earthquake. They're all trapped in there, so the only way out was to go through the transporter, the Stargate, and they all went through like this big group of people. They're all like. All kinds of different people. So I think it was like a big sort of ceremonial opening. So there was like presidents and all you know high up people. They all have to go to start, and they end up on this spaceship called the Destiny, which is flying through space. And the Stargate closes and breaks, so there's no way back, and they don't know where the hell they are. And so this, they, then there were, again with that, there was two seasons of this kind of spin-off thing about people trapped on a ship in a different part of space. Voyager does the same. It's this notion, isn't like it? Like Lost in Space kind of idea. Yeah, kind of like, a bit like Lost in Space. Voyager did the same. Let's transport people, yeah. you know, a group of people to a different thing. And I think, you know, Star Trek was more, they know where they're going. They're not lost. Maybe yeah, yeah. is this the first where they do, they're lost in space? Or oh, Lost in Space, I presume, pr- predates this, doesn't it? So yeah, it's it, just it, a little bit. But that was more, it became more of a sort of costume drama on it. And it was all set on one planet, wasn't it? With uh, yeah, They it were was, just yeah. lost on a planet. This is a weekly sci-fi yeah. show about a group like, of humans more like voyager actually voyager yeah blast, blasted into different areas having to do you know meet up with you know, like battlestar voyager stargate universe these kind of shows and i think that's its kind of biggest mm. thing where it's going like let's just take the safety of the net of home away and let's see what happens and that's where it is i don't think it resonates so much about its themes and what it's about and the way it sort of tells its stuff i mean it's got its eco message of that opening episode which is stop looking around with you, dumping your crap everywhere because it's going to bite you in the arse. But I don't know if that continues throughout. It probably doesn't. But yeah, I think it's a production style and a style of show where this reception influence sits for me. That's where I would go. I gave it a seven. I don't think it's quite up there, but I'm I'm happy to up it to an eight. But I think it was a seven for me. Okay. Okay. Well, let's let's agree on an eight, and that keeps it nice and sort of simple, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we just need to figure out our overall scores. That's All over right. to you. You're the uh, you're the Adrian Space Computer. So you quickly <laughs> figure that out. I am. And while we do that, um, okay. I would advise strongly advise that um, as we say, often say with these things, if you do want to check out these, they, they are all available on things like Blu-ray, DVD, and things like that. I would strongly recommend that you watch both pilot episodes and also the series if you've got the time and, and the energy, because they are all worth watching. Blake Seven does take a very dark turn. And Space 1999, it's always worth, just remember that, because even the music's different in the second season, but it's always worth watching that first season. It is There's some really great moments and there's some really, really weird stuff goes on in Space 1999. Yeah. Um, genuinely. So do check it out. So where we are with the scores then? You want the scores? I've got yes, the scores. Yes, yes. What's the scores? What's all the scores? Uh, Blake Seven uh, finished on a, a not too disrespectable 30 points out of a possible 50, whereas Space 1999 trumped all over its face and hit it with a lead bar and got 42, <laughs> which is the answer to life, the universe, life, and everything. The universe and everything. Ironically, so 
and that the, I'm just looking, it looks like a mad equation that you've written as well. Um, but yes, so uh, well, then we know Space 1999 triumphant over Blake Seven in terms of its numbers. In its even if it was an equation, it's just smashed itself in the face, hasn't it? It's just beaten him up, <laughs> yeah. and it's looked up his nose for the last time. So I think I would agree. I think it's inevitable that the outcome was going to be really. I think maybe if you looked at it, but we do take these. You know, we're taking these things on. The pilot merit, and we have to remember that we're trying to. We don't. We know we're not going into these things with a fixed idea of what the outcome is going to be. We debate it as we go through, as you've heard. And so, Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. I think even I think it, you know it had me at uh, da, 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 with the music and the dramatic <laughs> sort of crazy. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So you know, lessons learned there. As soon as the first thing time something exploded, I was all in. Yeah, exactly. Which was about, which yeah. about four seconds into the opening credits. <laughs> great, great. I love it. So um, yeah, Space Ninety Nine is declared therefore the um, champion. Sorry, Blake Seven, you are the uh, the person that's going to have to shine his shoes. <laughs> You are Telegram for Telegram for Mongo. <laughs> Telegram for Mongo, indeed. Okay, well, it just leaves me to sort of sign off then. Thank you for listening to our uh, wonderful Battle of the Pilots episode three. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Do obviously, this is the sister podcast to um, Zap to the Past. We are currently on a pre-Christmas break, Christmas break, whatever you want to call that, a time shift. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, so this will come out in between um some episodes of that but that said obviously you can find us um and obviously this podcast and all the information is on our is actually on our zap to the past dot um, com website um but you can also then go on there find other episodes of battle of the pilots and all of those other things as well and of course it would be remiss of me not to say if you are liking this and you enjoy this kind of thing that we do there are other episodes of battle of the pilots one and two and of course there's now 90 plus episodes of Zap the Past, which is our deep dive into the world of Commodore 64 games based on the episodic issue-based contents of Zap magazine or Zap from way back in the day, as people like to say these days. Can I just add, by the way, that if you wish to support us, if you like these, you can. You can go to our Patreon, uh, which is well, patreon.com forward slap to the past. Um, if you're listening to this and wondering where the next episode is, there's been illness. And so we're recording this as a sort of yes, uh, uh, illness break. It's an illness break. And so Zap to the Past will resume next week. If So if you're listening to next week's Zap to the Past and we're talking about how, we're having a, have, have, how we may have had a good Christmas, yeah, ignore all that. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it went a bit wrong. Illness. Illness <laughs> and sneeze and injury. Yeah. And um, yeah. we were. It was I, the Blake Seven of Christmases. <laughs> I was finally I was finally found by the uh, the COVID. So that the got vid, me. The dreaded vid. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so we'll be back next week. So on that bombshell, because I feel it is a bit of a bombshell for Blake Seven. He had a rough life as it was. <laughs> Open episode. He's hit on the edge with the pipe. Last episode, I think he gets shot. Um, in the interim, he's just lost. Um, so it just leaves me to say, you know, thank you for listening to this. I have been Graham Raddings. I have been Adrian Mills. And you have been listening to Battle of the Pilots, episode three. May we rest in peace. <laughs> Poor old Rest Raj. in peace, Blake Seven. Rest Poor in Raj. peace. Yeah, Rest bye. in peace, Rog. Um, <laughs> true, true. So I have been um, Rog Blake <laughs> Raddings. Um, and I have been funky space guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, no sorry i have been i've been the missing gib <laughs> the missing gib <laughs> so that's what we're signing off from funky c and the missing gib and we will be back uh, in the next exciting episode of something or other until then um keep reaching for the stars <laughs> <laughs> yeah do it do it <laughs>
Thank you kindly for listening to the Battle of the Pilots podcast brought to you by the team behind Zap to the Past. We sincerely hope you enjoyed this feisty look and comedic dive, indeed an out-and-out dust-up, between two classic pilot episodes that have graced our TV screens from over the last 50 years. We will, of course, return with another exciting and no doubt challenging episode. Until then, you can download this podcast and others from the zaptothepast.com website, as well as listen on all good podcasting apps such as Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, you know, those kind of things. The Battle of the Pilots podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Graham Raddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. And please do remember, all opinions expressed throughout the podcast are those of the writers. Now, go and watch something new on TV. You never know. It could be the start of something brilliant. 